So, so no cold think, opens yet. Oh. No cold opens yet. We haven't seen any, said anything that funny yet, um, or or made it that big a flub yet. But the day is young. <laughs> um, so in five, four, three. Welcome to preferred. Nah. Welcome to preferred enemies. The Warhammer Forty. Co- blah, 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 blah. There's their cold open right there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that is an open book. That's U.S. Open, actually. I'm your host, Rob. Dennis. And Richard. Uh, No Kevin on this episode uh, because he has family holiday stuff because this is Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, But uh, he also got an episode all to himself last week. So we're we're tagging him out and tagging you back in. (laughs) Since you were unavailable... Yay! <laughs> what, Richard? You don't want an episode, all of you? Uh, no, that's all right. I might pass out. <laughs> I'd say we've got Gene Stealer Cult Codex coming up before too long. So, yeah, I don't. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> But yes, if you hadn't guessed, our main topic today is going to be the U.S. Open, specifically the one in Austin, and specifically because, Dennis, you were there. I was. All three days of it. Yep. And so we're going to talk about your experience there and and kind of what these these Open tournaments have been like and some of the, the interesting thing, takeaways from that. But uh, first, as always, we've got news, new releases, and your listener mail. Now, news and as far as new releases, we've mostly been in Age of Sigmar land because they just dropped a new dragons for Stormcast Eternals, which admittedly look really awesome. They look amazing, but I'm still not getting into Sigmar yet. Yeah, they're they're cool looking, but I have enough stuff right now. <laughs> Oh yeah, my I have more than enough backlog right now just with just with 40k stuff, not even counting the Age of Sigmar stuff I already have. <clears throat> anyway, um but also we got uh the uh new all the Black Templar releases are officially out now. Um not just for pre-order, they're actually on shelves. So if you wanted Hellbrecht or Grimaldus or more Crusader squads or Sword Brethren squad or the Castellan or the Combat Patrol, those are all now available at uh, either GW stores or your friendly local game store. Uh, so you can go pick those up. And uh, I think they've announced a few holiday bundles, I believe. Yeah, that's been Dragon Week on uh, Warhammer Community, and they did have the uh, Not a Dragon section, which is where they covered Fire Dragons. (laughs) Very clearly marked as Not a Dragon. (sighs) So, yeah, on November 18th, they did announce some... uh, new battle forces that'll be available for you know it's it's christmas time they release army boxes 
So we've got the Shield Bearer Strike Force for Space Marines, which is an all Primaris force with a captain, uh, some Blade Guard veterans, 10 intercessors, 10 assault intercessors, 5 heavy intercessors, a Storm Speeder Hail Strike, and uh, that's pretty much it. We've got the Adeptosaurus Pergatos mission, which is a. Uh, Dogmata leading it, and then uh, five Celestian Sacrosants, ten Battle Sisters, an Immolator, and an Exorcist. The uh, Mechanicus get the Omnisized Talon, which is uh, five Taraxi, five Rust Stalkers, three Cerberus Raiders, um, an Iron Strider Balistari, uh, ten Skatari Rangers, and a Tech Priest Manipulus. So just all kinds of good stuff from uh, Mechanicus. Death Guard get the Plague Fester Warband, which is a uh, champion, an icon bearer for Plague Marines, and then another unit of seven Plague Marines, three Death Shroud Terminators, uh, three Mephitic Blight Haulers, and a Plague Burst Crawler. Um, and actually no HQs, which is interesting. Let's see then. Uh, Necrons get the World Scour Legion, which uh, has ten Necron Warriors and three Scarab Swarms. A uh, Locust Heavy Destroyer, three Ophidian Destroyers, five Flayed Ones, and two Canoptic Doomstalkers, who are now core, thanks to the uh, that Battle Slate update. And then the Kill Daka Warband for Orcs, which has uh, five Knobs, 20 Boys, 10 Unfortunate Gretchen. I like that they put that in there. They are Unfortunate Gretchen and a Runt Herd. Uh, and then a Death Killer War Trike, a Big Mech with Shock Attack Gun, and a docket jet. So, an interesting mix of things. Yeah. So, like, all of these are good, like, starts or add ons to existing armies. So, uh, and I imagine uh, they are they're arriving in December. So, they'll be coming out, they'll be available for order in the next couple of weeks. So, if that is something you are interested in, um, be ready for those to disappear. Those always disappear really fast. So <laughs> jump on the site quickly because they're, they're holiday only exclusives. Uh, but other than that, other than that, uh, other than product, there was a, a bit of news and uh, it, it kind of happened over the last couple of weeks. And we actually had somebody on, on Twitter even ask us to make a statement or you know, like discuss it even before GW came out with their official statement. And this all goes back to an event in Spain, the GT Talavera. Now, from all reports, the, the that event, that tournament, was very well run, and everybody had a really good time. Well, almost everybody, because there were a few people that didn't because of their opponent. And... Uh, so I'm I'm just going to read the statement that the the organizers of the GT Talavera made to uh, they gave a, a statement to Spiky Bits to kind of explain what exactly went down and uh, we, and then we'll talk about what GW's response to this was. So he, here's the statement quote. I am writing on behalf of the El Corbrador del Wa Club, organizers of the GT Talavera, and I am writing to clarify what happened in the GT Talavera, the return, in reference to the Nazi who participated. 
I, I mean that first that first sentence. What happened in reference to the Nazi? Hoy. So everybody buckle in. It's going to be a ride. First of all, I would like to make it clear that the club repudiates the Nazi mentality in all its aspects. We are a club made up of people with different political ideas, some more liberal and others more conservative, different religions, Catholic, agnostic, etc., and from different countries, Spain, Argentina, Panama, to which our passion unites by Warhammer 40k. With this, I think you will understand that Nazi ideas have no place in our group because they are contrary to everything we stand for. As a second aspect, I would like to highlight our deep sadness to see that this has not bothered to contrast the information that comes to him through emails. I understand the fairest thing would have been to contact the organization and listen to our, very, our version of events, which I will present in the following paragraphs, and with both information to be able to have an objective opinion. The facts were the following. During the second day of the tournament, one of the participants showed up wearing clothes with Nazi symbols. One of his opponents refused to play against him and demanded that we expel him from the tournament. Two members of the organization, one of them a lawyer by profession, met alone with the player in Nazi clothing, exposing him to the situation and our dissatisfaction with him showing this symbolism in the tournament. This individual replied that he had no problem in playing against anyone and that he had behaved correctly throughout the tournament, but if we wanted to expel him, he would call the police himself. At this point, we want to emphasize that in Spain, it is not a crime to display Nazi symbols as long as it is not accompanied by criminal conduct, and I want to emphasize that we do not believe the law is fair and correct, but that is how it's written. Instead, if the organization expels this person for his deplorable ideas, it is the organization that is committing a crime of ideological discrimination, and he could perfectly denounce us and would have the law on his side. At that moment, we found ourselves tied hand and foot. Once reached that point, if any player does not play their game, the opponent automatically wins 20 to 0. This is if they are on the bases. Uh, this is, it is something very unpleasant, but in such a difficult situation, we believed we had to follow the rules of the tournament and emphasize the organizers were the most upset with this situation that we were forced to take. Uh, these people, uh, these types of people are professional provocateurs who perfectly know how far they can tighten the rope without having legal consequences for them. In this case, the person behaves correctly at all times, leaving us without weapons to expel him by not having a criminal behavior. We have taken note, and in future editions, we will write legal tools into the tournament basis, tournament rules, that to allow us to expel people like this with the law on our part. In the 10 years that we've been playing tournaments, we have never faced such an unpleasant situation and did not realize that it would be necessary until now, which we deeply regret. Once said incident has been commented, we would like to let you know that all these emails were born from a harassment campaign that we have received from groups of people with animosity towards the club and the event. And then they go on to talk about uh, how they there was also some issues of people because they didn't allow recast models at their event. And that's really not um, relative to the, you know, it's not important for the conversation here. But... Uh, Basically, yes. So somebody showed up and apparently uh, put down their name for the event as Austrian Painter, which is not a subtle reference to a certain German dictator. And uh, yeah, showed up, apparently played everything chill and under the radar day one and then day two shows up in uh, full on like neo-Nazi regalia and uh, there's actually if you look up uh, on Goonhammer uh, they had a you know they do their regular like reports from various tournaments somebody 
and they actually somebody in the comments posted pictures of what the guy was wearing and it is completely blatant i mean it is not even slightly subtle it's i mean it's swastikas in and other white nationalist logos so uh yeah it's it's pretty gross but because of the way laws are written in Spain, they found themselves... Because you have to also understand Spain, up until recent decades, not that long ago, in the lifespans of probably a fair number of people listening to this show, was under a fascist dictatorship. So, unlike, say, Germany, which had fascism kind of beat out of them by the Allies... Uh, Spain, it just kind of faded into the background and they didn't quite have that same reckoning. And thus, you know, fascist symbols and, and, and hate symbols like that are allowed, like the law says, as long as you're not doing anything criminal. And so they, yeah, basically guy shows up in, in full neo-Nazi regalia and his opponents are like, no, I'm not, I'm not playing this guy. I'm absolutely not playing this guy. And they're like, well, if you don't play him, then it counts as you conceding and we have to give him full points. So the guy basically ended up with like three 20 to nothing rounds, like or at least at more than one. I don't know if it was three exactly, but like ended up with multiple like 20 to zero rounds because his opponents refused to play him because he was a gross, hateful person. And very proudly so. Which I just want to put this out there right now. Um, that guy sucks. I would not want him at any of our events. I mean, I doubt he would be because he's in Spain. But I don't want him or anyone like that at an event that I run. Uh, I mean, I since Kevin's not here, uh, I... I asked him for a statement, and he confirmed that his statement was, and I apologize for the language here, but uh, fuck Nazis. So, um, actually, I don't apologize for that that language. So, I know it's we we've tried to kind of moderate our language in recent years, but I think on this one, this that's an, that's an f bomb that's allowed. So, um, yeah, and I understand the tournament organizers being in kind of a, a weird spot because of the way laws are in Spain. And this percolated around the 40K internet for a while. And uh, so GW finally had to release a response. Now, last year they had the their Warhammers for Everyone post that they made, which was pretty unequivocal in that if you are, you know, if you, you know, that everyone is welcome in the Warhammer community, you know, regardless of race, gender, religion, etc. And if you aren't good with that, then you will not be missed. You can go. We don't want you here. And we were very supportive of that statement. So um, GW had to release a new statement on the Warhammer community on November 19th. They released a statement called The Imperium is Driven by Hate, Warhammer is Not. Um, and this post starts off by basically explaining first off that there are no good guys in the Warhammer 40k universe. Um, in our Black Templar review episode, I referred to the Black Templars as effectively Catholic space Nazis, and I, from the sound of it, GW pretty much agrees <laughs> that uh, 
basically everybody in the GW or everybody in the uh, Warhammer 40,000 universe sucks. Everyone's even the people who think they're doing good are doing horrible things to do it. And one of the things they pointed out about this is that the the 40k universe is intentionally grim dark, as grim and dark as they can make it because it is meant to be satire. It is meant to be what happens if these behaviors that we sometimes see in our real world are cranked up to 11 and taken to their logical extreme. And what it turns out is a universe that nobody really wants to live in. And so like they, you know, for clarity, they say, uh, you know, they, they talk about the, the Imperium of Man is satirical. For clarity, satire is the use of humor, irony, or exaggeration, displaying people's vices or systems flaws for scorn, derision, and ridicule. Something doesn't have to be wacky or laugh out loud funny to be satire. Uh, the derision is this is in the settings amplification of a tyrannical genocidal regime turned up to 11. The Imperium is not an aspirational state outside of the in-universe perspectives of those who are slaves to its systems. It's a monstrous civilization, and its monstrousness is plain for all to see. And then they continue... Uh, that said, certain real-world hate groups and adherents of historical ideolo- ideologies, better left in the past, sometimes seek to claim intellectual properties for their own enjoyment and to co-opt them for their own agendas. We've said it before, but a reminder about what we believe in. We believe in, in and support a community u- united by shared values of mutual kindness and respect. Our fantasy settings are grim and dark, but that is not a reflection of who we are or how we feel the real world should be. We will never accept nor condone any form of prejudice, hatred, or abuse in our company or in the Warhammer hobby. And that is, that is a paragraph straight from the last year's statement. And so they continue, and this is the absolutely most clear, unequivocal statement I have seen pretty much any entertainment or game company make about things like this. If you come to a Games Workshop event or store and behave to the contrary, so the contrary is we don't believe in hate or abuse or prejudice, and, you know, basically, if you... If you come to a Games Workshop event or store and behave to the contrary, including wearing the symbols of real-world hate groups, you will be asked to leave. We won't let you participate. We don't want your money. We don't want you in the Warhammer community. Over the, For those heroes out there running their own Warhammer events, we'd love for you to join us in this stance. Over the years, we've been fortunate enough to support events like Adepticon, the Las Vegas Open, Blood and Glory, Glory, and many, many more with terrain, prizes, and goodie bags. We've also provided staff with help to help with organization and rules queries and to judge painting competitions, run seminars, they, and they provide a link to contact their events team. Uh, but basically saying, at our events, if you try to pull this, if you come into our store and you try to pull this, you're going to be asked to leave. We don't want your business. You are not welcome here. You are not welcome, not only here at our stores, we don't want you in this community. We don't want you in this hobby. And we'd like all the independent event organizers to join us on this. And then name-dropping some of the big ones, which I think very clearly puts you know, puts pressure on them to agree, which I don't think there's any real, like, I don't think much pressure is needed here, but you know, basically kind of saying we're on this on this page, you know, are you? 
And I want to say Adepticon did release a statement in agreement. Yeah, Adepticon on November 19th, so the same day, uh, they linked to this statement and they said, The Warhammer community website has posted an important and unfortunately necessary statement reminding us that hate has absolutely no place in this hobby. We here at Adepticon cannot offer a more full... a more full-throated agreement. The convention supports every single sentiment of the statement, and we encourage all our attendees to read it. This is not a new position for Adepticon, and we have never tolerated hate at our convention. We won't tolerate hate at our convention in the future. Adepticon has and will remain a place where every attendee, volunteer, exhibitor, and staff member are welcome and respected. Again, please take the time to read the statement. It is thoughtful and succinct, and Adepticon is proud to stand with the Warhammer community. And then they continue, they locked down comments on that and said, it should go without saying that this isn't up for discussion. If you want to support group, show support, I'm sure the Warhammer community would be grateful to hear. If you have an issue with the statement, you can take your opinion to another venue and remove yourself from this group. Thanks. So, again, there's no no hemming and hawing, no no marketing speak of, well, we should all be nice to each other or anything. No. Games Workshop has said this is not does not fly. We don't allow it officially, and so far the response from the rest of the community has been, "Yeah, we don't. You know, we're with you on this." I have seen some people, and some of it is the usual idiots, but some people like counteract it or you know, try to be like, "Oh, Games Workshop doesn't understand their own setting," or "Well, I'll just be more hateful," and it's like. I've seen a number of people outing themselves as actual hateful bastards, so uh, they will not be missed either. Yep. I mean, it is it is absolutely sad that we that it has had to come to this, and I I've seen other commentary that Games Workshop should have addressed the uh, the embrace of the the Warhammer 40k IP by like fascist and ethno-nationalist groups, you know, in the past few years, they could have addressed it sooner. And that is perhaps true. But um, once it really came to settle on the, on their doorstep and risk casting them and the, the game that they've created in a, in a very bad light in a way that is, that was getting quickly publicized they didn't have. I mean, they they spent a, probably a couple of days to craft the appropriate statement, and then when they did, it's like, oh yeah, no, that's that is that is the right statement. So, yeah, um, and I, I am I am hoping. I, I mean, I, I believe that all the tournament organizers that we have worked with or whose events we have attended in the past are completely on board with this as well. I can't imagine they wouldn't be unless I've unless I've horribly misjudged them, which I would hope I haven't. No, I, I, I think that is something that should be very easy to agree with um, for anyone who doesn't have hate in their heart. Right. I, I haven't seen anything from uh, like Frontline or... Yeah, Frontline or uh, and, or the Las Vegas Open hasn't announced anything, but I can't. At least I not that I'm finding. 
but I can't imagine, especially with GW like name dropping like them like that. I can't imagine they wouldn't be completely on board with that. And they may have also been taking some time to confer with the heads of those events and say like, we're going to make this statement, put your name out there. So right, that would be just the nice thing to do to make sure that you're okay with name dropping. Right. So I wonder if they, maybe they have, they could have it on the ITC page, but anyway, yeah, it's like, I mean, the ITC also has player, um, like player behavior standards and anything that like one of the things that you can be red carded with is like, if you make the game look like if you make the, the event look bad, they can ask you to leave. And so, I mean, they're pretty much covered under that. Yeah. The very first rule under the decorum, a player may never take an action that would put the hobby of Warhammer in disrepute. So I'd say that covers it right there. Yeah. And so, yeah. So basically, they they've already kind of written like if you make this game look bad by just showing up and being a bastard um we'll uh, we'll ask you to go so yeah so that's that's been that that's been the thing that has uh been one of the more talked about things specifically in the competitive circles cuz that's where it, you know obviously it comes up but uh it hopefully it won't come up much again after this and and there may be people who try to be trolls and, and try to see how far they they can push it but i'm also glad that the the people that organize the gt talavera are going to uh like review their tournament packet and put in guidelines that would make it very clear what is and isn't allowed it's basically the pro- i think the problem was the guy was already involved like he was already attending the tournament for a day or so Whereas, yeah, and so they didn't have any guidelines in their packet that were very clearly spelled out ahead of time. And so because the rules hadn't clearly said you can't wear neo-Nazi stuff, they, you know, this guy was basically able to use Spanish law. And from the sound of it, this is a guy who knew exactly what the, you know, like you said, it's a, the like the statement said, it was like kind of a professional pro- provocateur. He knew exactly where the line was and how far, what he could get away with. And so by putting in their their tournament rules ahead of time next year that you cannot do this like this is not allowed and they'll probably have to do something like you know no nothing with like real world political groups or or what have you on it and i mean that's kind of a nice generic way to deal with it but i think you know gw's statement also allows all these tournament organizers to say we are just running things in alignment with the the company's organizing rules so that i think that also helps give uh smaller organizers cover on being able to put these rules in place even in environments where they might not like if they didn't have those rules in place they would be in danger of skirting weird you know discreet you know viewpoint discrimination laws and and here I'm gonna, you know, we are obviously we record in the United States, and there's a thing here that that uh, gets I think misunderstood by a lot of people called the First Amendment, uh, which the First Amendment says the government cannot cannot censor your your speech, like cannot uh, you know cannot censor your free expression. However, a lot of people take that to mean that. Uh, 
you're free to do whatever you want with no consequences that nobody can can nobody private can ask you to leave if you don't follow guidelines or you know that they have to allow you into a space and the answer is no they don't they can always ask you to leave um, especially if it has to do with your behavior and if your behavior is in t- is intentionally antagonizing people they can absolutely ask you to leave the other thing on this show is We've tried over the last several years to stay, you know, while we individually are not apolitical, we have tried to keep the show relatively apolitical because we do have friends who are on different places on the political spectrum here in this country. And so, you know, we we do not always agree on politics, but we can generally agree on getting together and being friends and playing playing Warhammer. However, I do not see like something like Nazism it falls way outside the boundaries of that. That that is an ideology that actively calls for the elimination of of people. And I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. If that's if that's where you're sitting, then please stop listening to this show. You're, I don't want. I don't want your. I don't even want your listener metric. Like that. There. There's a point where I'm just like, no, you're not welcome here either. So I'm gonna follow the GW rule. Like if that's if that's who you are, I don't want you as part of this community either. And maybe that's if that rubs some people the wrong way. The people that it rubs the wrong way, I'm not really bothered. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, let's move on to a to something more enjoyable because that again the fact that we have to talk about this sucks but it needs to be talked about so um so we're gonna take we're gonna move on from that into listener mail as always these letters are written by you listeners and i apologize for having listener mail like especially the first person on here to have to follow up nazi talk so uh my apologies but uh as I, again, as always, these letters are written by you listeners, and if you want to know how to get your letter read on the air, we'll tell you how after the segment. So, first up is from Rory Harbinson. Rory writes, Greetings, preferred enemies, my favorite 40k podcast with occasional voice appearance from Kermit the Frog. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Hoping you can provide me with some guidance here. I have some friends who play Age of Sigmar, but I'm more of a fan of 40k. I'm considering starting a demon's army so I can use the models in both game set. I expect no. I expect that all units or characters would be usable in both games. Is this a reasonable plan? Is there any particular chaos god you would recommend for this? And should I aim for a more mono god or mixed army? All advice is greatly appreciated. P.S. Rob, how could you not include 28 Days Later in your zombie movies, the original Fast Zombies and Terrifying? Thanks, Rory. Um, so, uh, Rory, I'm going to point out the fact that uh, the zombies, quote-unquote, in 28 Days Later are not technically undead. They are people infected with a, a rage virus that causes them to go psychotic. Uh, so for the terms of the movies that we were watching was specifically Undead October, it didn't qualify. Not to say that 28 Days Later is a bad movie, and it is definitely in the zombie genre. 
the zombies aren't technically zombies, so that's why I didn't include that film. All right. Uh, so as far as um, using uh, f- demons in both 40K and Age of Sigmar, this is absolutely a thing you can do. Now, some Age of Sigmar armies will tend to work in mortals as well, either under their particular battle tomes. So, for example, Slanesh has Hedonites, is Hedonites of Slanesh, which includes a lot of their mortal worshippers. Um, there's Magakin of Nurgle, which includes mortal, like, putrid blight kings and things like that that are, are technically, in, like, infected mortals. But uh, but you can absolutely build an army that is just all demons and can be used in either. Um, in Age of Sigmar, I would definitely... If you're going to use this army in Age of Sigmar, I would definitely aim towards Monogod. That, is a, that game supports Monogod very, very well. In fact, much better than it does in 40k because with 40k all the demons are lumped into one codex and while there are benefits to building detachments out of you know that monogod detachments um you don't get all the special rules that like age of sigmar has where it's like magakin of nurgle have a whole set of rules about like the garden of nurgle and how the, the life and death cycle kind of ebbs and flows and hedonites of slanesh have this system of like how to resummon other demons based on activities you do in game by inflicting wounds without killing things because you're inflicting pain and that earns you points that you can then spend to summon more enemies kind of along the or more you know demons kind of along the lines of what like corn demon can used to be in uh 40k and the other thing about it though is sigmar seems to be a lot more melee focused there's i mean there are ranged attacks but it's not as prevalent as it is in 40k so it makes all of your demons that don't really have guns that want to be in melee do better because that's what everyone else is trying to do too right right and now, as far as demon armies, I've still seen, even in 9th edition, I've seen some really nasty things done with Slanesh demons in 40k. So, I would say, if you were going to go Monogod, um, you know, Hedonites of Slanesh, I believe, are decent in Age of Sigmar, and that same army will function... Well, if it's you know, especially if you if you know the army well and you you learn to to uh, like get exploit the ins and outs strengths. and have yeah, definitely exploit its strengths. Um, I think Slanesh would probably be the mono god to go with, followed possibly by Nurgle. Um, Zinch isn't bad. I think Corn, strangely enough, is probably the weakest, but. Uh, but I mean, the like I w- I would probably look, especially the reasons I would also look at Slanesh and uh, Nurgle for Age of Sigmar is uh, he knights of Slanesh, they got a an updated battle tome right before, like just a couple of months before the new edition came out, and Magikin of Nurgle are getting a new battle tome I think next month. They're like one of the. F- First, I think they're the third battle tome that's been updated after uh, Stormcast and and Oryx. So and when the Slanesh uh, tome came out, the, it they jumped to the top of the, I guess, food chain in, in Sigmar. I think they've yeah. been toned down a little bit since, but 
if I were to play Sigmar, that's how I would go, because even though I love the steampunk dwarves, I already have all the Slanesh models, and all the named characters for Slanesh are in both 40k and in yes. Sigmar. Right, so everything that you can use in 40k is available in Sigmar, which, but the vice versa is not necessarily true because, like I said, there are mortal worshippers of like Slanesh and Nurgle who are not available in 40k. But if you're going all demons, and you can absolutely do that in both, and the, I would go either Slanesh or Nurgle, but I would definitely stick Mono God in that case, even though in 40k Mono God might not be the best option. Um, and I'm it is hoping also that changes. Has, uh, yeah, and I think also once they get a ninth edition codex, which will hopefully be sometime next year, um, that that'll be uh, that'll help bring them up with everybody else. Because I'm going to be on the weird side and hope they don't get a codex, and I would rather see them get four codexes. Okay, or, fair, fair. Or maybe split them up better like they did with space Marines where here's your generic rules. That's probably what they'll do. Keep one codex, but they just, they just need more support for each individual faction. I think the only tricky part with, with that, if they did a base book is there's only a handful of units that are shared. (laughs) I know. And and, unlike space Marines where almost all units are shared. Right. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. I'd I'd rather see four books then. I th- I think what would be the best thing is if we saw Demonkin books for all of them, the way that... Yes, Corn Demonkin was. Yeah, except we won't see that, with because that would require them to basically redo, like, Thousand Suns and Death Guard again. But, um, but yeah, like, Slanesh Demonkin and Corn Demonkin that focused on uh, Emperor's Children and World Eaters, respectively, would be good. And I think, like, I know Kevin would be over the moon with something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, that he's would, been wanting that was Demon Kin back. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, he was so good with that, too. So, yeah, I, I would, and I was really hoping we'd see that back in, like, 6th and 7th edition for everybody, and we didn't, but still hoping. So, yeah, I, I definitely would like to see that. But, yeah, Mono God would be the way to go, and right now, I think my money would be on Slanesh or Nurgle. Um, there is a new Nurgle... I think they're calling it a Vanguard, which is the equivalent of a combat patrol for um, Age of Sigmar. Uh, But it's going to mix mortal and demon followers. So you may not want to go with that one if you're going all demon. But yeah, those would be the two gods I'd go for. I'd definitely go Mono God because Age of Sigmar supports that. And either Slanesh or Nurgle are going to be the, the best ones to start with. All right, next up is from Michael Buckthorpe. Michael writes, Hello, Preferred Enemies crew. Necron Overlord Michael Buckthorpe here, writing you from the frozen and barren wastes of Vancouver, Canada. Um, I, I'm going to... He has a PS about that. Uh, I will I will save that towards the end. Um, I'm a big fan of the show and greatly enjoy listening to the latest hobby news on my daily commute. Thank you, Michael. As a longtime hobby enthusiast, I've seen the game of 40k change drastically over the years, and while I mostly preferred the painting side of the hobby, in recent years I have started to pay more attention to the competitive side, joining a local league, and even playing a few games on the YouTube channel Play on Tabletop, which, as a side note, you should totally check out if you haven't before. I must say I greatly prefer this edition to previous ones. I find the objective-based play dynamic and more engaging than the typical slugfest I found previous editions to boil down to. I also think Games Workshop has taken several steps in the right direction towards game balance with the new FAQs, chapter-approved, and the recent balance data slate. 
As a longtime Necron player, the recent changes to Core have breathed new life into my beloved yet dated early 9th edition codex, and I am extremely excited to play with some of the new Wombo combos. My question for your collective minds today is, what other small tweaks do you think Games Workshop could introduce to level the playing field? I feel the deadliness of some of the newer codexes needs some form of counter to boost the survivability of their opponents. I seem to recall some mechanic that allowed the second player turn their second turn player to dig in or take cover to boost his survivability. Maybe some tweaks on faction objectives to possibly encourage conservative play. What do you think? I look forward to hearing your thought. Er, I look forward to hearing everyone's thoughts. Happy holidays from your Northern neighbor, Michael PS Vancouver is not really a frozen wasteland. I just enjoy the frozen North archetype of our Southern neighbors. Give us eh? So, uh, yeah, Vancouver also Vancouver has the benefit of being on the Pacific ocean. So it doesn't get to be, like it, it's it's not frozen north the same way like Seattle, which is like just down the coast from it, is not frozen north. No, frozen north is our friends in Minnesota, because that place will kill you. <laughs> Minnesota will kill you. I mean, we've been in there in November, and it wasn't. It, it, it was okay. I still. Remember, I remember might go the, back next November. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, we <laughs> might. Um, I remember the first year we went to to Minnesota for Renegade, and they're like. Oh yeah, the temperature's like f- in the 40s here during the week of Thanksgiving. It's not that bad. And we get there and there's like an ice storm. The parking lot was slippery. There was a blizzard that chased us out of town when we left. And then like a couple of trips later is when we finally got the passable decent weather. But I I like I can't imagine trying to go up there in like January or anything. Uh but anyway, uh to to Michael's uh, point. Uh, so I do agree that uh, Games Workshop has definitely tried to keep their finger on the pulse of, of the balance of the game and, and what they what they may have unad- unintentionally unleashed upon the community with some of the codexes they've written. Um, and I think ninth, the first year of 9th edition was a bit rough just because we were in the middle... We were in the early and middle stages of the current ongoing pandemic... And they, because we didn't have things like vaccines, um, policies were like, there was no way for to have large events. And so that data that they need to, you know, where you have hundreds of games being played and you can definitely see like what, what armies are burning up the field and, and what builds are doing, doing way too much heavy lifting, um, what was lacking. And now that they have that information again, um, from events such as the U.S. Open circuit, we're starting to see balance balance changes coming back, um, and so what more can we what what more can they do to help balance the field further? Um, Dennis, you you just finished playing like a seven or eight round tournament. Um, what? What kind of takeaways would you take for, like, what could you balance, like, things we could do to kind of, like, even out? Because obviously, like, there's the whole first turn, second turn, like, who goes first? First player obviously has an edge. I I will say I didn't feel that first player had an edge in all the games I played, and I could get that later. But I think that's because you have the die roll that determines first or second, and you don't get to choose. Just whoever wins the die roll goes first, and that happens after deployment so both people kind of have to deploy defensively because if you deploy offensively and your opponent gets the first turn you're going to get shot a lot and also with 
most of your points coming from do objectives. I mean, killing people is still a good option, but if you don't score the points yourself, if you just focus on the killing, they might be able to squeak out a win by doing the objective. So I do really like how that's made the game play. And also when I was at the tournament, I did not feel like, I mean, lots of people held things in reserve too. And it was more for strategic purposes rather than I need to have everything on the board because every turn it's not there is a round of shooting. I lose. So, I think the way the rules are, the way, and also the train was more set up too. So it was shooting was harder because the train's in the way. Um, so both those factors play into that we don't ha- see as much, or at least I didn't see any alpha strikes really happening. Um, but I, I know they're still out there. But as for what I, I changed for balance, it's it's so hard because it would have to be on a faction by faction basis. Because I mean, there are some factions where they have no psychic powers. There are some factions that are all psychic powers. Um, like the Grey Knights players I played were were used to getting all their spells off because most opponents wouldn't bring a librarian or a psyker. And here I was denying most or at least half their spells, um, which is different for them and i could do that because my army was balanced against psyker so it's it's almost like a rock paper scissors type balance right now mm-hmm. um but all in all i'd overall the only thing i could think of tweaking it would just be and i'm gonna say this badly is drop it if if we're afraid of spam that's the only thing i could see and if we dropped it from three to two for a number of types of units minus troop that could maybe alleviate some of the spam, but I don't know. I don't know if that's a really solution that would put more diverse things on the board because most players I've seen when they find the best unit, even when we talked in the past, when they had slots and it was like a competition for who could get that slot. Cause you only had like maybe what three elite slots and you had like six good units, which, which ones are you going to take? And it normally choose, we'll pick the best one. And that goes in that slot. It, now that we can just take as many as we want in a slot, just add a detachment on. Um, that's the only thing I could see that might be out of balance is if you have a unit that is much better than others, it's going to get spammed. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and of course, you know, there's an easy fix, and that's reduce, you know, reduce game size down to like 1,000 points because that's already built in there. But that also gets a ton of pushback. So, right. But uh, I think like some that's also something that can be handled on even a slot by slot or unit by unit basis because like obviously we see it on a lot of things like cultists and and you know units that have been abused for you know as a cheap troop tax in the past now have limits on like they can't be taken for unless you have like as many of like the base troop choice so like for like Death Guard, you can't have more cultists or poxwalkers than you have units with the like bubonic Astartes keyword. Um, or well, I mean, yeah, uh, and it's more of like what they've done with the the dead is the the balanced dead slate where the the buggies orcs. and 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 the the planes can't have more than one. So. Yeah, like cutting cutting down flyers to a max of two per army rather than like two per detachment. I yeah, it's those kinds of changes. I think like you can we can look at 
units and like they may be troops and troops may be spammable but there's still like per codex limitations that can be put in same thing they said with the buggies and with flyers so yeah like cutting down the number of options that can be taken over and over again would be good i mean you i've even heard some people refer to things like uh uh, not in this edition, but in past editions, the the idea of the Highlander rule, where you can't take a unit until you've taken every other possible unit in that slot. Or, like, you can't take it a second time until you've taken everything that can be taken in that slot. Um, now, how well that would work for some armies rather than others... Uh, like sisters was always one of the armies that uh, could kind of get around that because, well, we only have one troops choice in, in sisters. Now we have two, although not everybody can get their hands on novitiates yet. Um, but it's, there are, there are definitely limitations you can put in that as far as the deadliness of the game. Um, I think by like, I, I do think I was surprised when they didn't put the take cover, um, strat in, but I think they were leaning more, more and hoping that the that a better use of terrain, like you said, Dennis would would kind of counteract that. And from what you say, seen, that does seem to be helping. Oh, indefinitely. I mean, right now, especially at the U.S. Open, um, tanks were the ones that would have a hard time. So if you had tanks in your army, your your sight lines and firing lines were very rare, and it. it it definitely supported more of the, um, not slow moving, but the land moving infantry. So that, cause they could actually do use breachable to go through walls to actually get through the train a lot better than your vehicles can. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I do find interesting though, is the second place army at USO at the U S open Austin and not to, to spoil too much, but it was hive guard spam of that basically use the ability to not or to ignore line of sight to get. And we've talked about that before. Like it was one of the reasons why flyers were so difficult to deal with is because flyers could basically get easily get around line of sight blockers just by flying past them on turn one. And so anything that can avoid there, I keep saying avoid anything that can ignore line of sight kind of gets around that and can do well. So it, it's interesting to see how how units that do that like, and I'm like it's also just cool to see Tyranids in second place at a huge <laughs> event. Yeah, <laughs> second and fourth, by the way. Yeah, I I remember hearing that there was a couple. Yeah, the final two games were both Dakari versus Hive Mind, which or forces that's, of the Hive Mind. Yeah, yeah, because they did have. Uh, at least one of them did have gene. Looks like they may have both had gene stealer cults involved. Yep, they both had gene stealer cult uh, patrol detachments, just to uh, apparently to be able to put down like blip tokens to just like confuse their enemies and kind of control deployment a bit, even if they only had like three or four actual cultist units. Yeah, but. Uh, the the second list though the one that took fourth place is actually pretty well rounded because like I had a Malanthrope and the Swarm Lord as an HQ and only one unit of Hive Guards but they also took like a Maliceptor a couple units of Gene Stealers a couple units of Termagants a unit of Hormigants Tyranid Warriors I mean it's it's a little bit of everything and that's actually really cool to see 
So uh, obviously the balanced data slate did change up the f- the format and what's good. I think it's interesting to note that there are no Mechanicus in the top four. And in fact, there's like there was only one uh, Mechanicus army that was actually in the top bracket. So obviously that army took a big hit. So they're... The, you know these adjustments are having effect, and it's nice to see somebody who plays Necron saying, "Yeah, this actually has breathed new life in my army." Having having these core choices, so it really does sound like. But it sounds like like the deadliness of the game, it like from the beginning when they started rolling out like some of the weapons changes for Ninth Edition, they they were very much like, "Yes, this is going to be a deadlier game." So I think that's intentional. In fact, they just uh, released some updates that like troops are going to be getting in the next three codexes, which they confirmed Tau is codex number three, but like custodian guard, all their spears are going like the guardian spears are going to a flat two damage rather than D three. Same for Sentinel blades. And they're all getting plus one strength. And the damage on Sentinel blade shooting is gone up to two. And, uh, like, uh, Fire Warrior, all all the weapon ranges for Fire Warriors are going up by six inches, and Pulse Rifles are getting minus one AP, and Acolyte Hybrids. Now, here's an interesting one. They don't get more damage output, necessarily, but they're going to tough four so that they can survive against, like, strength six guns better, so they don't just get w- wounded out on, on, on twos. So... Yeah, it's it's interesting to see how they're they're changing things up, but they're definitely putting deadlier weapons, more consistent weapons in place, and also bringing in a little bit of extra toughness and survivability. But I think yeah, they are wanting to put that survivability for at least some armies in the hands of use the table well, use the terrain well. And while they didn't keep that take cover strat, I with like with the way like command points work and the fact that you regenerate them like every turn on your command phase, like the player who goes second, like that would almost just be an auto, like I'll just spend a command point on that strat because I'll get it right back. But if you have terrain, you that's appropriate and clearly delineated, uh, then it kind of gets around that issue. So I think we're still kind of in a in a stage where we're we're transitioning, even though we're a year into ninth edition because we are kind of delayed by COVID. I think we're kind of in that adjusting to ninth edition, and Games Workshop is also making those same adjustments as they are adjusting the game. So I, I don't I don't know if there's anything general other than just keeping up on the the updates for like points and slot usage and preventing spamming of things that are just like too good or out of flavor for the game so i'd just say michael have gw keep doing what they're doing because they're obviously paying attention now that they have the data and they're they're trying to keep the game as healthy as possible and so that's good All right, next up is a letter from Trey Swanson. Trey writes, To the wonderful hosts of this podcast, you may remember that I was working on a Dark Mechanicus Admech army. Well, I have to say, trying to through this year has been a rough time. To date, I haven't won any with them, and honestly, I'm unsure if it's still worth trying. I really got into gear at the end of 8th edition, and immediately I was on the back foot. 8th and the 9th was kind of a wash given the pandemic, but once general play was back, I tried to learn. 
The process has been very painful. Going into the new codex, I was hopeful, but my local opponents, mostly Marines, Guard, and Custodes, kept beating me down. I saw that people have been winning with some of the models I shared. That got me worried, and I packed the army away. Now with the points nerfs, one of my favorite units, the Dragoons, seem more and more expendable, especially when it lets me include other favorite, another favorite, Onagers. Really, though, the more I try to write up new lists, I get to the same point. At some point in list construction, my thoughts drift into a why-bother mindset. I'm unsure if I could even get rid of the army with all the conversions in various states of painted status, but it seems the right answer. I don't love the struggle. I don't love the lack of help, as I'm playing a competitive faction, quote-unquote, so I need to stop complaining. I really don't love how, in comparison to my Thousand Sons, the Admet cannot effectively integrate their great Forge World 30k models. Am I correct that I should just try and drop the army, or should I try and persevere? I still love the army's fluff, and it gives me a creative outlet, but the general attitude around the army seems poor to play with. Yeah, this is a tough one. This is a tough one. This is the, I'm playing an army that suddenly jumps to the top of the meta, and everyone hates that army, but I'm not playing in the style or build that abuses what has been made that army competitive and it becomes disheartening i i trying to think if i've ever been in that there was a period where like tau was i think in sixth edition when tau was like stupid good and i was playing tau and it's like you'd have to differentiate like well i'm not that tau player because i'm not taking three riptides you know that kind of thing um, but it, it is hard, and Mechanicus is a very complex army, and you'll notice a lot of the really good competitive builds for Mechanicus were basically down to, like, five units that they were just spammed into oblivion, including, like, f- you know, flyers and Balistari and blob squads of rangers or vanguard. And you'll also notice, as we just mentioned, that Mechanicus is not cleaning up anymore because of the balanced data slate. And so it's it's tough when you're in a build where you're struggling because you're not taking the good stuff build, but you want to keep playing your army, but you also don't because you're just not having fun. And especially if you're leaning more competitive and getting into, you know, trying to get into competitive play in your scene and just constantly getting beaten down and possibly taking a little bit of, uh, you know, ribbing for playing the competitive faction. Here's the thing. This is a game. And if you're actively not having fun with the, that army, I I don't know if I would sell it off. Because like you said, if, if it's partially painted and heavily converted, it may be harder it may be harder to sell. I mean, you, you might be able to sell it. There, I'm sure there's somebody out there who would love to buy a Dark Mechanicus army, especially if you can sell it to somebody who's into playing like 30k, although I believe Horse Heresy is going to be getting a new rule set in the next year or so. So who knows what will actually be good in that game. But if you're not enjoying playing Mechanicus and you've been working on it for the last couple of years and it's just not clicking. It's not working. Like, you like the idea of the units. You like the look of the units. But, man, the gameplay is just... It's its not gelling the way you want to play it. You don't want to play it in the competitive spam builds. And you're just not having any luck. And it's disheartening. 
absolutely set it aside. I know I have done that with armies before. Granted, that just feeds into my problem of buying another army, but... Right, I was going to echo that. I think I know I had that with Eldar early on when Eldar was very, very good, and I was just playing jet bikes, so I liked it. I did good when jet bikes were good, but then when they weren't, well, I still played jet bikes, and I pretty much got shot off the table. And yeah, that wasn't fun, and one of the ways I got around it, because I didn't want to get rid of my Eldar, because I still liked it because of the fluff, and I had... Well, <laughs> I'll say painted models, but th- looking back, I still have some unpainted Eldar and some that still need to be put together. So I- I'm at that stage where I still have all those. But at the same time, I think my solution was to play another army. And I, I hate saying that as advice, but f- as you alluded to, Ra, or actually, no, you flat out said, is find what's fun for you. If Admech isn't fun right now, what would be fun? Would it be dusting off the Thousand Suns? Would it be looking at another faction? But whatever you find fun in the game is kind of what is to chase after, as opposed to, I guess, digging in the trenches into something that you're not enjoying. Because it sounds like if you're having... Even building list is making you say, why bother? It's It's like... I think you're to the point where you haven't given up on Adamant because you still want to play it, but just put it together, paint it, make it your hobby army, and maybe Mm -hmm. for games, play something else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe have like two two things you do. Like you have your thousand sons that you, that's what you take to the gaming club. That's what you take to, to, you actually like playing tournaments, playing leagues, etc. And then you're, Admech, your dark Admech army just becomes that. Like, this is my my passion project. This is the hobby thing I do just to, because I love the look of it. And maybe I'll never play with it. Or maybe it becomes like, hey, if we ever play narrative player crusade where it's like it's not as competitive and, and army's going to be more limited, maybe that's the the army you use there and tell interesting stories with it or just purely have it as a display piece and that's totally fine too but yeah if it's if yeah i'm with you dennis if it's not bringing you joy do not feel bad about setting it aside absolutely don't because and and if and and don't feel bad about like well how come because i i'm also getting a little bit of why am I not able to make this army work? Obviously, it's a competitive army, which means it's a good army, which means I must be doing something wrong. You know, I interpreted that and the I, other way of it's. Well, I, I'm, I, I'm playing this army, and people are saying, "Well, you're you're not playing it right because you're not playing the competitive list." Well, yeah, yeah, no, well, and I think that's the you know I think it's a little bit of probably both of that because getting into the you know I'm trying to build a list and why bother? Because you know on the one side it's like, well, I could build the list. That is the way that the good build is, but that's not what I want to play. But what I want to play is not going to do well, or I just haven't found the piece that gels it. And I don't want to go through all the trouble of constantly chasing after, like, buying this unit or, you know, tweaking this thing to try to find the right build for me that actually clicks. And some people love that challenge. Some people absolutely love that challenge and, and chase not. And I wouldn't even say this is chasing the meta, but more trying to solve the puzzle. 
and some people do not. And it sounds like Trey is somebody who, after this, after a couple of years of it, is just not wanting to solve that puzzle anymore. And in that case, you put the puzzle back in the box and you set it aside for right now. And that's fine. There's no shame in that. Absolutely none. But still, if you love the Army's fluff and it gives you that creative outlet, maybe if by taking the pressure of having to have it all built and painted competitively that gives you time to like work on smaller bits of it and put more detail and more love into it and more like pour more of your creativity into it, but then play with the thousand suns. Um, that's, that's a totally valid option. And I, I, and there's plenty of people that do fantastic modeling that never ever play. So, um, you could even be somewhere in the middle. I play with one army. I, I create with the other one and that is totally an okay thing to do. And then our last letter is here from Bill Malone, and Bill writes, Hello, preferred enemies. Hope you're keeping. Hope you're all keeping safe and well. Have loved listening to you guys since returning to the hobby after the guts of a decade partially removed from it. I'm originally from Ireland, where I got into the hobby as a bright-eyed 10-year-old enthralled by goblin green rims and static grass. I continued through my teens before the classic long sabbatical. I got back into it at the tail of 8th edition in my adopted home of New Zealand. Several things have changed in the interim, of course. I have two questions, or I guess more like discussion topics based on these observations. Firstly, what is the size of hobby in terms of people? Does anybody know? GW recently celebrated 1 million online customers, for example. Ooh, I honestly don't know. Um, and one thing to keep in mind is, like, you'll see people trot, you know, trot out, like, competitive event numbers. Like, hey, we had 250 people at this super major event, things like that. And we have to remember that competitive play is the tip of the iceberg as far as like the hobby community. Um, I don't even have a really good uh, guess on how many people play 40 K or some form of Warhammer or Wargaming in the Kansas city area, just because there's a lot of people that um, there's a lot of people that don't go to tournaments. There's a lot of people that, maybe only play in their basements. They're like there's some people that will go to stores and play casually. There's some people that will play in tournaments and there's some people that just play at home. And it's really hard, especially if you don't have sales numbers to uh, judge that number at home. And also games workshop celebrating a million online customers. I mean, that might be a million total sales, but who knows how many of those people are still actively playing. And then that doesn't even cover the number of people who buy from local stockists and friendly local game stores and things like that. So, And even with the Games Workshop, that could be for all different products. And it could be also grandparents buying for their kids a thing. Or, I mean... you might be buying gifts off the Games Workshop store. So. Also, also possible. So it's it's really hard to to guess. It's it's definitely in what I would consider a niche hobby. Like, I don't think Games Workshop brings in anywhere close to like video game sales numbers as far as like no. numbers of, of units sold. But uh, I I would say there's definitely dozens of us out there. Dozens, I tell you. Well, there's <laughs> more than dozens in Dallas. I know. The, I Dallas, know. Da- the Dallas 40K Discord server has about 400 people on it, and that's not all the people I know that play in Dallas. So we, we the, it, it, 
it's an underground garage number that we don't know it, but it's it's I don't know. It's I would up there. say across the United States, there's probably tens of thousands. I I'd say I I think saying probably like fifty to seventy five thousand in the United States wouldn't be a a like it might even be a slightly conservative guess. But that would include people who maybe bought their stuff years ago, don't keep up with the current stuff, and just play what they got casually in their basement, too. So, But that would be, like, across the entire continental U.S. I don't count Hawaii. I don't. I just don't. No. <laughs> but uh, I, I have no idea what the numbers would be, would be like in Hawaii. But I know they have events in Hawaii, so there are definitely players there, too. But... Uh, yeah, so I I really don't know. I would imagine there's probably a couple hundred thousand worldwide, maybe. It's not a huge market, but it's also enough of a market that they've managed to get like Marvel Comics to to publish their their comics, which comic books are also kind of a weird niche market when you get down to it. So yeah, I don't know. All right, second, he continues. My second question is the ever-contentious issue of pricing and cost. Not so much the general cost of our little plastic men. It's an expensive hobby, and we enter into that willingly. But the huge regional fluctuations across the world. The pricing for Australia and New Zealand and Japan is way off the mark. I've done some very rudimentary calculations included below, and oh, how I wish we had Kevin here for this one. I Because he's an accountant. Not that he's good at math, necessarily. Um, I've used the price of a standard box of intercessors direct from GW for this example, which is valued at 35 pounds. When you convert this into the euro pricing, it's 45 euro. When taking into account the exchange rate, this is an additional markup of 7%. Uh, This seems reasonable, giving shipping expenses and to allow for exchange rate fluctuations, etc. For US pricing, $49 US. uh, This differential is 18%. Again, allowing for shipping, exchange rate fluctuations, and tariffs. Between the UK and US, this seems relatively reasonable. Uh, now, the issue I have is poor old New Zealand getting shafted with the difference being 64%. It's slightly better 50% for Australia and Japan. The exchange rate would be uh, 35 pounds to 70 New Zealand dollars, but the actual uh, retail price is 115 New Zealand dollars. There were rumors online of a readjustment of pricing across Asia and the Pacific in the next year, but not sure of the validity of those rumors, although the same rumor dump was correct about the Custodes and Gene Stealer Colts box. Uh, Anyway, apologize for my ramblings. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Bill. Um, This is actually a topic that has kind of like bookended the show because one of our earliest episodes, we talked about the the Australian exterminatus that uh, when they they clamped down on uh, Australian third party vendors selling stuff or taking direct orders because uh, they were kind of undercutting the, the costs that GW put in place. But if I remember from then, and I can't imagine it's changed uh, much, a lot of that cost is due to shipping because there's a there's a bit of difference between shipping from like the UK to the, to Europe uh, or from the UK to the US and then shipping from the UK to Australia um, or to and then to or to New Zealand or to Japan. It's a much longer trip and shipping capacity is limited and there's no 
I think one of the things that was brought up is like there's no GW. I don't think they have like an Australian headquarters. Like in the U.S., there's a U.S. headquarters in Memphis, Tennessee, which happens to be like right next to uh, I believe FedEx's like local distribution hub there. And so that helps them with, uh, although I think they send a lot of their stuff via UPS anyway, but like Memphis is a big shipping hub. They were originally located in uh, Baltimore, if I remember right, their U.S. headquarters, but they moved to Memphis primarily because it was closer to a shipping hub and would make it easier for them to ship product cross-country. And we also know that they now have... Uh, distribution centers in the U.S. This was actually a big thing a few years ago when they put in distribution centers for both regular GW product and Forge World product here in the U.S. The idea was that instead of having it sh- your Forge World stuff shipped from like having to have it shipped from England, they could actually ship it from the United States, which allowed them to cut down on on shipping costs or at least standardize them somewhat. Um, and I believe part of the pricing issue with Australia and New Zealand and also Japan is that they don't have an equivalent of that there. Um, and so everything has to be shipped directly from England. And so the, there's a lot more costs involved. Now, I am not... I am absolutely not an expert or even remotely knowledgeable in uh, Australian taxes, tariffs, value-added taxes, things like that, and even less so for New Zealand and Japan. So I don't know exactly what all goes into that that retail price uh, calculation, but this has been something that Australian and New Zealand fans of 40k have suffered through for years and years and we were talking about it 10 years ago and it hasn't gotten any better um also i think there's it's one of those things where like a straight up conversion doesn't necessarily help because of some of those shipping and warehousing cost issue issues because um like novels for example like a novel that costs like seven pounds which might like like a hardback or something because actually like here's a perfect example i'll be right back there okay so i read the uh the expanse series of novels and when i first started reading them i was picking them up actually from uh, a local half price books and what's interesting there is um, the first three books I have are a slightly smaller form factor, and that's because they are not American copies. They are British copies. And the British copies have a price on them of £8.99. My f- then from like the fourth book onward, I actually was, again, mostly buying from uh, some from half-price books, and then others I ended up buying new. But... Uh, the uh like the fourth book is a US or is a North American release and it's $17 US, $22 Canadian. Now I am curious, let's see. So if I look at Amazon Australia, Amazon.com.au, and we're going to say we're gonna deliver Oh, we'll deliver to New Zealand because that seems appropriate. 
So if I look at the paperback copy... Okay, so this is interesting. Um, the Okay, this completely counters my point. The paperback copy of book four, which is the one that's $17 US, um, has a retail price of... And they do specify all the prices are in Australian dollars. Has a price of 23... Like, the base retail price is $23 Australian. So only slightly more expensive than the Canadian edition. But let's see. Eight... 99 GBP to AUD. Um, so the Australian, like nine pounds British, is just under 17 pounds Australian. So you're still paying another half again, you know, for the Australian copy. Whereas if it was to USD, yeah, the US book copy of the book would to like nine a nine pound book would be a twelve dollar US book, and yet here it's it's seventeen. So the the cost of uh, goods and the the ex- like you can't just look at a straight exchange rate. There's a lot of different factors that are involved, and I'm really like I don't know all the factors, but I know some of it has to do. And with books, they might be able to, like, it might it might be easier to print, like, it's easy to print books, but, so, like, these Australian copies may actually be Australian copies, like, printed in Australia. So, I don't know if the, uh, if the Australian copies are printed in Australia, and therefore, you're just paying for the extra expense of maybe having paper and ink shipped in, rather than having the finished books shipped in. Um, but with models, it's like the only way they could reduce the cost uh, this, I do remember from our conversations a decade ago was that they'd have to like set up factories to make models in basically the Southern Pacific. And there's not enough. It's kind of gets into the, you know, how big is the consumer base? There may not be enough business there to justify the cost of creating, factories and duplicating all their mold, all the molds because like anytime they release a new model they would have to they would have to have molds created and they'd probably either have to redo the tooling manually in you know multiple parts of the world or mold craft the molds in the UK and then ship those over to the to Australia which would also take a long time and could possibly slow their release schedule because they might not be able to release models in the US, like in the UK and US and Australia at the same time. So, and and it's Australia. So they'd have to make those molds upside down, right? (laughs) I don't think that's how that works, but I've never been to Australia. So, or 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 if they're like spin cast, they have to spin them the opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> like that episode of The Simpsons where the U.S. Embassy had the device that made the toilet flush in the oh. north <laughs> northern hemisphere right. way. <laughs> right. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we're offending so many people, but yep, uh, yep, yep. <laughs> but yeah, so the yeah the, the, that exchange rate issue has been an an issue for a long time um 
and yeah, why why the products in Australia are so much more expensive? I again, I don't know all the factors that are involved. I am sure there is like besides the the obvious shipping costs, and I'm sure there are also like value added taxes and such. There's a very different like you know, there's an entire set of laws and regulations that would affect costs that I just don't know about. Um, the only other thing I can think of is also one slight difference is, uh, like for example, the minimum wage in Australia. To give you an idea of the economics, the minimum wage in Australia, as of July first, twenty twenty one. Uh, because they actually, unlike us, they raised their minimum wage to keep up with inflation. <laughs> I know what a, what a what a what a concept. Uh, their national wage is twenty uh, twenty dollars and thirty three cents per hour, or for a thirty eight hour work week, seven hundred and seventy two dollars and sixty cents. Um, whereas uh, in the United States. <laughs> Um, we're at like seven, seven twenty-five, and we have been for the last twelve years. And while there are some localities that have raised that to, based on state, like a state rules, and some cities have raised have raised theirs. So, for example, like um, San Francisco has a citywide minimum wage of fifteen dollars and fifty-nine cents, and and that's and that's if you don't have have a job that has tips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ugh. Where it, it, yes, and we'll get you know the whole thing about most of the rest of the world thinks tips are a weird thing because it's like well the gov- the business should just pay you to to do good work. It's like yeah, they really should. Huh. Huh. But yeah, so the economics of what goes into the exchange rates of uh, products in the southern hemisphere. Uh, is kind of outside, I think, our, our area of expertise. I will agree that I think the 115 is too high. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there, there, there comes a, a point where they need to realign and maybe they're getting ready to, you know, if the, if rumors are true that they are going to readjust pricing. However, I have yet to see a price readjustment where prices go down. Right. I'm just going to say yeah, that. Exactly. So I, I wouldn't get your hopes up for that. So, right. Yeah. This this is actually a question that we we probably should ask again and and get like Kevin's two cents. Yes. On. Yes. I I think we'll we'll bring this one back up to him as as commentary in next episode because yeah I would really like to. Because he's also traveled the world and has had to deal with costs of things in different countries, so he may have right. Um, and his a lot job is in finance, money yeah. dealing. Like that is kind of what his job is. So, so, so come back next episode when we'll have actual expertise instead of us just fumbling our way through it. Yep. Which I mean, that's what we normally <laughs> do, but it'd be kind of nice to actually have some expertise. So. <laughs> And if you have a uh, letter you'd like us to read with or without expertise, we make no promises in one way or the other. Uh, there are three good ways to get us 
uh, your letter to read on the air. Uh, first is you can email us. Uh, you can email us at our first names at preferredenemies.com. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferredenemies.com or also our first names at preferredenemies.com. Uh, second is Facebook. We are at facebook.com slash preferredenemies. And as terrible as Facebook is as a platform and company at times, it is still one of the ways we connect with a lot of our, our listeners. So you can like us there, follow us, see what we're working on, get updates on when episodes are coming out etc third is twitter we are twitter.com slash preferred enemy singular and uh, we take comments and questions from all three of those sources collate them together get them in the hopper and uh, try to get through as many as we can we did actually have one more pending that we're going to push to next episode uh, because it just came in this morning and is a list review and we are still rusty at list reviews so we're going to take a little bit extra time to look at that one so we can launch into it in the next episode and uh, hopefully have some solid feedback but uh, if you want to get on the show, those are the ways to do it. And we get all those together and read them as we can. Also, if you want to help support the show, uh, we do have a Patreon. Now, if you have the money to support the show, we also uh, prefer that you um, put money into your local community first, uh, especially with the holidays coming up. Food banks, warmth funds, things that help provide for shelters, blankets, food, uh, toys for tots uh, renegade open just raised a whole bunch of money in toys for toys for tots and that's a, a fantastic cause and so like if you have the means to support your community please do so but after that if you still want to help support the show we are patreon.com slash preferred enemies and it is basically an online tip jar because we don't lock any of our episodes behind a paywall everything is available on our feed uh, for free to listen to but your support does provide things like um keeps our uh, it pays for our hosting it pays for our recording service it pays for microphones and when we have to replace them and also helps defray some of the costs of traveling to various events which is going to be a thing that's going to happen more and more often as uh, as we start traveling more as as events have figured out how to negotiate this weird during and not i wouldn't say post pandemic we're still in it but in this weird new world we find ourselves in, events are still going on. And so as we as those go on, we will be attending more of them. And uh, that does take money. And so the, your donations help cover the cost for that. So uh, we really do appreciate the help. But again, as always, if you can put your support into your community, that is the best place to put it. Um, but if, if all you can put in is a dollar, enough people put in a dollar, it adds up and helps out. Uh, so we are going to take a break for sponsor identification, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about Dennis's experience at the Austin U.S. Open. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them, we paint them, we love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Care Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, 
KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from GameMat. Their professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a GameMat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and that means it's time for our main topic, which is a look at Dennis's experience at the Austin U.S. Open, the uh, actual Games Workshop official tournament. Uh, and uh, so y- you actually did a really good write-up of this for us to kind of go over. And so well, I'm just going to had to you- because if I didn't, then I was going to forget everything. <laughs> Well, it's three days of of, uh, 40K to discuss and all the things that made this event different than some others. Yeah, this this event actually, to me at least, felt different from a lot of the other tournaments I've ever been to, really, including like you when we were off thing talking about War Games Con. I mean, this probably wasn't as big as War Games Con. Memory is a little fazy. Memory's a little hazy because that was so many years ago, but no, I mean, I don't know. What, do, you, do you want me to start with just describing the situation there? Or yeah, um, sure. I mean, okay, yeah. What well, you're right well, up. You you steer first. first or well, I'll say first impressions of getting there. Um, they had a registration. It was very very simple. I mean, that you just walked up and you were registered, and I think this was in part. Um, thanks to Best Coast Pairings, because they just checked you in through that, um, and that was pretty amazing. And I'll say once again, I think Best Coast Pairings has been a great benefit to the community. Um, I will also say, though, they they did say you needed all these copies of your lists and everything, um, but they they more just said, is your list in Best Coast Pairings? Cool. They pulled it up. So they they... They didn't even check it there. They just kind of used the app. Then when you got to f- tour the, or view the room, um, the place was large, like you'd expect, uh, but all the tables were spaced out. And I think that's something that has been a thing for a few years, and it's just nice to see it reinforced that players need space to move around the table, as opposed to, I know in past years, I've seen like the, when they had all the folding tables all next to each other so you had long lines you had to walk all the way around or go under oh the table. those were the worst for some deployments too yeah oh yeah oh yeah but no these were like we've had i've seen it iron halo i've seen it renegade where they're all spaced out so you have like 360 
around the table. You you can move. Um, and so that was great. The terrain, um, it was all GW terrain. This is the first tournament I've ever been to where all the terrain was consistent on all the tables. I, I mean, let that sink in a little. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I mean... LVO might be the same because they have frontline gaming kind of backing up, but I, I've never been there, so I can't speak to that one. I, I'd say LVO's been pretty good about having consistent terrain because they, yeah, they do produce their own terrain and they use that pretty much exclusively. Yeah, and so that's what this probably felt similar like. feel. Yeah, yeah, and I mean everything was GW. The mats, and I, I totally forgot that GW made mats. The mats were GW mats. The train was all GW train. And you had variety. Um, but the neat thing is, um, all the train they put on there was modular and thus movable. Um, so, and they might have taken things. So your big building was always like an L, but you could like take off parts of the L to actually like have your people go through it, which was nice that those pieces weren't glued together. Um, and then they had the newest thing for me, which was the area train markers. And I know way back in the past, we would get what cardboard, not cardboard, um, like uh, MDF or hardboard. MDF, yeah. yeah. And we'd put that as, at the base of our buildings, glue the buildings on there, so that this was the area footprint of the piece of train. Well, GW's answer to that is having, I'll say, like clear acrylic, um, not mats, but rectangles and squares and that was the area terrain and so it was invisible to the eye when you like just glance at the table from a like just you're viewing the battle but you could see it you know it's there so you can know oh here's the area terrain this is where it becomes obscuring this is where it becomes um breachable and all that stuff so since they defined that in the packets they in the packets they put down the layout of the terrain how big the pieces were um, and what the rules were for each piece of terrain, it kind of made it so you knew what was going on. And then, like I said, they were just like an L shape for the building, but the, the building had that, thus a square footprint or like the little towery things might be on the side and it had a rectangle footprint. Um, and I think that made the game balanced and even on all tables because they all had the same terrain deployment and, you knew what it was, you had the rules, and the heights were pretty much all the same. I mean, it might be like a half inch taller on some things, but I mean, I'll, I'll call that a negligible thing because the shape of the buildings were the same. Well, right, and with the rules being the way they're written, it's like as long as the building is like a minimum of so many inches high, like this piece is considered like obscuring and things like that. Exactly. So, so in, in that regards, this was the first tournament that I've been to where... It was all the same. And for flavor wise, they did pick terrain that all matched the theme. Like this is the orc table. This is a Imperium table, et cetera. And they picked mats that matched the terrain. So, I mean, it, it kind of was a neat spectacle to look at. Um, now I'm wondering so, if they had those mats custom printed for this event because they don't sell mats on their website. Anyway, like they briefly, um, maybe sold so then, and uh, you were mentioning like the clear pieces of acrylic that they had these uh, no. pieces <laughs> that had the train on, and so um, we were discussing it. And you mentioned that they were selling sets, and so yes. went ahead and uh, 
opened yours? Had you uh, pick me up a set and <laughs> and ship it to me, and uh, yeah, that's it's a it's hefty hefty acrylic. It's a it's a hefty bag, um, and uh, but all also like in a, like a, a basically huge like Ziploc bag, and you said they were selling like sets for like thousand point and two thousand point tables. Correct. Yeah, and, and the so, yeah. Thousand point tables were um, four tiny squares, two rectangles, and then the two thousand was all of that plus four giant squares. Yeah, plus a giant. Like, it's not giant, but well, but they're like a a foot in each direction. Yes, it's a foot square. Yeah, and so yeah, it's and of course the these all have the nifty U.S. Open logo on them. Although you said the ones that were on the tables did not. The table ones did not, and I will admit when I was first saw them, I thought. Eh, that's a neat gimmick. I don't think it's going to happen. But then after playing games using them, having defined areas of for the terrain made such a difference. I went ahead and picked up one myself as well. Oh yeah, and you know, you mentioned that we used to do it with like uh, MDF, and I still have some of those those buildings here at my house. And, and I remember even th- it is really nice for Oh yeah, and it's it's really useful for marking off area terrain. And then in like eighth edition, seventh, like the, the the needs of terrain changed so much in eighth yes. edition that 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 kind of fell out of favor. Area terrain didn't mean anything. The only thing that mattered were like having big line, line of, of sight, sight blockers. Yeah. yeah, like the this I hated the L shaped walls that every event. It was using like these big L-shaped buildings that were just like two, just two wall sections that, and then have like two of those in the middle. But now that we actually have area terrain, that as long as parts of it are of a certain height, it matters, and it's line line of sight blocking and things like that. It's like that's really handy to have, and and like you said, you know, having this where it doesn't obscure because that's the one thing I don't like about those MDF bases is if I put them on a table. It kind of, especially with all the decorative mats that we've got, it's like it <laughs> breaks up the it breaks up the look of the mat. Like it breaks up that vers, that verisimilitude. Whereas with the uh, with this acrylic, like I can put a building down on a mat and it's gonna look like it belongs in that space. And especially because this is GW and this is a big kind of feature event for them. Uh, they want to have everything look as good as it possibly can, but also still be as functional gameplay-wise as it can be to bring out the best of the gameplay as well. I think they pulled it off. I mean, the the tables were gorgeous, and I think having defined rules helped. So, I mean, I, I think they, they nailed that one out of the park. Good. Um, and that was just looking around at the, the tournament scene on, like, the Thursday night at it. Um, Friday, they, they did have more um, changes that, that I definitely would love to see other tournaments get involved in doing. Um, one of those is active judging. Although this is going to be really hard for most events, especially smaller ones, is they actually had judges walking around the room. I mean, when we ran Midwest Conquest, we would walk around the room. and But we weren't actively judging we were more just passively being there in case someone needed to um call a judge 
but they specifically called out the judges and they the judges would the judges would stop by each table for a bit i mean maybe not in order but they'd stop by they'd watch for like a few rolls see how things are going then they'd move on um and they we were told at the opening ceremonies judges had the power to step in say when a die roll like someone might have fudged a die roll or might have moved some people too far um and judges had the authority to stop that game, step in, correct it, and then ha- let people keep playing. And I think that was nice on both counts of, one, the judges know they have the power, and the players know the judges are there to enforce the rules, as opposed to it kind of being a friendly contra- contract between the two players and call a judge if you have a dispute. So that is a shift in mindset. Yeah, and I think it, it that like I said, that's going to be tricky for some events to handle, just because you have to have enough volunteers who are familiar enough with the rules to make those kinds of adjudications, <laughs> right? Yeah, who aren't and, playing in the event. I mean, it's like eventually right. you'll have. Yeah, it's like you you don't want to pull all your all your high end talent out to be to be judging. I, I, but I, I mean, yes, that's why I said that it would be a hard thing to do, especially since. There's so many rules. Like, I don't think I could do it because I don't know all the factions' rules or anything. I, I could tell you the core rules, but so whoever does that has to really know their stuff. And so props to all the people who are there who are doing the judging and just anyone who tries to do this type thing in the future. Because I think on the whole, it just helped psychologically knowing that the judges are not there to be arbiters. They're actually kind of referees who will call call it as they see it type thing yeah and that hopefully is one of those things that can would discourage and i i'm i can only imagine gw has has been watching you know their events team because you know they've got mike brant on there from nova open so he knows what's you know what people have done in past events and so it's like well how can we discourage somebody from like any form of you know malfeasance in the event. And one way to do that is to let them know there's always some, you know, there could be somebody watching you at any time and coming up and basically saying, Nope, do that over <laughs> or, you know, carding yeah. you or something. And maybe Wait. they could expand that to the streams too. <laughs> oh yeah. I, our, I, th- I think judges, I think, <laughs> I think uh, streams should, I think those absolutely require active judging. I think, a, I think a streamed game needs to be actively judged. But I think, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, we've talked in the past where, like, players are sometimes feel uncomfortable with the idea of going up to a judge with a dispute if something's going on. They're like, yes. man, I don't want to, you know, it's like, I don't want to, and like, maybe the my opponent's a little bit of a bully, or maybe I just, I just don't feel like it, or maybe I just, you know, I don't want any feel-bads or anything. But knowing that, like, the judges are there, and they're ready to step in on their own recognizance, you know, their own... They they can take their own own agency to step in and adjudicate a game. Yeah, that's that takes some of the pressure off the players too, and kind of helps keep people honest. And if you're going to treat this as a competitive event, you kind of have. I think you really do have to have. Uh, if you're going to take this seriously, I think it does almost reach the level of having to have referees the way you would have them in a competitive sport. Yeah, I don't know that we're to that level yet, because then you'd have to have, like, one at each table. Um, <laughs> good luck. And, and one thing you did point out, like, earlier in your write-up is that this is 
they, not an attempt to displace or replace the current competitive scene, which is something I remember you had a concern about when we, we were talking about I, I the, did, these events yeah. earlier. I, I was going to say that for end, but the, the biggest thing, and I'll probably reiterate at the end, is GW did say that this was more to be a celebration of the hobby, and they weren't trying to muscle out any tournament scenes, especially local. Um, so I think they went out, I don't say out of the way, but I think they went out of the way to pick areas and times where there weren't any big local tournaments at that time for the area they were going to. I mean, sure, they did pick some times that overlapped with other events, like US Open Austin was the same time as Renegade Open in Minnesota. And that was sad that I could not do both, and I picked Austin because it was closer. Um, but the main Minnesota crew could probably still do that. Or we what it was I think Orlando was the same one as um, Flying Wichita, Monkey, Flying Monkey yeah. there. And so though I think to GW those are geographically distinct areas that they won't see as much overlap of people going to. Right. Um, and I'll, I know that the Flying Monkey t- crew is a little salty about that when those dates were first dropped, but I think they must have gotten over it because I know Bam Bam went to both uh, New Orleans and Austin. Oh, yeah. And he did very well. I mean, I'll, I'll toss out my spoiler thing here. Um, Bam Bam actually did win an award at the Austin one for yes, going 4-0 in his pod. So, Yep. Hats off to you, Bam Bam. Um. And the other thing that they, they said about the tournaments themselves is they were not going to um, go to the same cities twice. They truly wanted to make this one where they went to different cities across the country and with the goal of going across the world, and they don't know how many they're going to do next year. They also don't know what cities or what dates. So that's all still in flux, but they're just wanting to pick new locations to just in a way, it feels like a, a Olympics World Cup or something like thing where you, those cities aren't bidding for these, but um, they want it to be a traveling kind of celebration of Games Workshop at each area to try and brighten or bring up the local scene, and then they'll go someplace else next year. So I will cross my fingers there's one in the Midwest next year. I'd love to see one here in Kansas City or thereabouts. I think I think it'd pull a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, as we noted, all three of these events sold out, although on game day, we only had 211 out of that 256, so I think some people didn't make it. Right. Uh, but then, jumping back to like the games themselves, in addition to active judging, the other thing they wanted players to do was, I'll say, actively finish games, and if you can't get to turn five, if you're close enough when like the last ten minutes or so are called talk through your remaining rounds with your opponent and the fact that they encourage just talking through things. I mean, we've seen people talk through things at tournaments before of like how it's going to go, but hearing them announce it as something they expected is like, Oh, cause and I mean, a lot of times when you are talking out, you're like, well, this game's pretty much been decided. Here's how the rest of the game would go type thing. And both players are normally very agreeable to this, and it speeds up and allows you to finish pretty much the five rounds. So I did really like that. The only exception to that rule is if they are calling time and you're not past turn three, they wanted you to call a judge over so the judge could pretty much 
um, met out the decision of how the game would have went based on what's on the board and all that. Because then you have an impartial person coming in for a game that has not been decided yet. So you're not just kind of just dotting the I's, crossing the T's. You actually need to have an impartial person tell you, yeah, here's how it would have wound down. And I actually got to experience that firsthand in one of my games. And it, it, it was not the most fun of experiences. But the judge was patient and he made all the fair rulings. It just, I, I think I was more not happy at being in that situation myself, even though I knew it would come to that and, and whatnot. But I'll, I'll get into that when I go into some games. But it was nice to know the judges were there and the judges didn't judge you. I mean, their name's judge, but they didn't. They were helpful. They were adjudicative. They were um, impartial. And that's what you need in an official. It, it, yes, I think absolutely. they did their job great. Well, and, and uh, they're talking talking through the games again. That's a, another case where you need to have judges who are also knowledgeable. Because True. it's like <laughs> to, to really be able to talk through like a game that still has like two, two and a half turns to go and be able to kind of judge what the outcome is going to be in a reasonable fashion, you kind of need to know what the capabilities of the armies involved are going to be. Yes, that is very true. Um, then I'll talk through the other one, which is I think the biggest change that tournaments could do now, and it, it, it it's how you call time. Because um, I know at our tournaments you always say, like, okay, it's two and a half or three hours tournaments or rounds, and okay, you've got two and a half hours left, you got two hours left and you pretty much call every like 30 minutes or in the last hour, maybe every 20 or 15 minutes. Right. Um, no, they took a totally different approach is they set up milestones. If, if anyone downloaded or looked at the, the packet that they had on their website for the event, they pretty much spelled out in the packet where each milestone was like, Oh, at about the first 10 minutes, you'll be done, um, talking through your army. Um, Ten minutes past that, you should be done deploying. And they kind of went it about that way. And then when they called rounds, they didn't say you had an hour left or what. They called it like, you should be done with deployment and moving to your first round. That's your first milestone. And then they 20 minutes later, they'd say, you should be complete with your first round, moving into your second round. And, and so and you weren't hearing times. You were hearing about the pace they expected you to be playing at. So you could hear whether you were ahead of pace or behind pace. And you knew if you were ahead, oh, cool, we can maybe like chit chat a little more. Or if you're behind, you're like, okay, well, we got to stop some of the chit chat and actually like speed up our play. And I felt that very good because hearing it in terms of a game term rather than just a time made you feel like you knew exactly where you should be in the game and helped you kind of get back on track if you weren't. Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Cause it's one thing to know like how many minutes you have left, but sometimes it's like, well, what does that mean? Like what does having like two and a half hours mean? Like where should I be in the game? And yeah, I'm looking at the packet right now and I do see how they, how they spelled that out. And I'm glad to hear that they, they did actually use that as their kind of yardstick to measure by. So that's, that's cool. No, and it was really helpful because, I mean, even late in games, you'd hear, like, you should be on your fourth turn. I'm like, oh, yeah, we, we are. Or if we weren't, we were close to it. And, and so it just it helped either reinforce where you're at or tell you you needed to speed up rather than, okay, you got 20 minutes left. Don't start a new round. And you're like, um, okay, we're on round three. So just 
having those little nudges in your ear was really, really good. Yeah, they, they even say in their packet, uh, outside of tournaments, most players do not compete their complete their games against a set clock. As a result, when the loudspeaker shouts two hours remaining, most folks don't naturally think, shoot, we should be almost done with the entire first battle round. And to help with this, rather than simply calling time left, event staff will t- call time based upon the place of the game you should be on, should on average be at. Don't fret, we'll also tell you how much time is left. Okay, I like that True. too, so... Yeah, they they did do that, but just having the milestones and that's just a simple change tournaments could do now. Yeah, Um, that is that is something that any any event could do. So yeah. So and then in general game length, I know they had um, set this schedule to be three hours. I still think that's the right amount of time for a um, game at two thousand points. I know there's talk about two and a half hours versus three hours. And two and a half hours is, I think, doable, but you're going to need to play fast. You need to know your stuff. It, two and a half hours, I think, would be a good time frame for a competitive game. Um, a pure casual game should probably be about four hours, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this meets it in the middle where... And I think most all games got to five rounds. I mean, I heard some people who played very competitive people first few, few rounds. Uh, they were done within two, two and a half hours because they were bet. Yeah. stopped. But if you had an even game, like most all of my games, well, except for the one, we pretty much went close to time. We finished with like five to ten minutes left. And to me, that's like finishing right on time. Although that made my lunch breaks very short, but... <laughs> Um, no, it it was still a competitive game. I think needed the three hours. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with that. When, when we first went to three hour, uh, three hour round times. Yeah. It's harder for the schedule and it, it is harder on the players, you know, overall, but it's the time the game absolutely needs to, to be finished and even with only five rounds instead of like the six we used to have, um, I still think it's the time the game needs. Yeah, no, I will agree. And then let's see. That's probably about how all the the rules and the the judges and all those um, train things as. Um, well, I guess brackets would be a thing I should talk about next before I get into games. The way this tournament was set up is your first four games were kind of like a preliminary or like a play in type thing. And then based on your record, um, you would be put into a bracket. They also had said that um, the brackets, if you went forward on your brackets, you'd win a prize type thing. So that, and then the third thing that they said was, and they did this third part in the tournament as well of they paired people up based on where your wins and losses were. So like by round three, if you were two and one and your two wins were, um, or by round four, you were two. You have two wins, one loss. If your wins were round one and three, and your loss was in two, you would be paired up against someone who won in rounds one and three and lost in two. You would not be paired up with someone who just lost in round three. So based on that, I figured that oh well, that and sixteen. Um, uh, blah, blah, blah. So based on that and having two hundred and fifty six players, that you can break that out into sixteen groups of sixteen because sixteen would get you to four no to win a prize for your bracket. Um, so I thought, well, they'll break it out into 16 brackets. No, they broke it out in five brackets. And 
Those five brackets were four and zero, oh, three and one, two and two, one and three, and zero oh and four. And I guess what was nice about that was the going into it. Yeah, you did play people who were around the same. They won the same games you won in the same rounds. But then when you got to the brackets, it gave them a larger pool, especially since they didn't have all 256 people, that they could pull from for each. And it kept your bracket one was the 16 people who were undefeated. Mm-hmm. So the, it, I, I saw how that worked after it got in, and I'm like, oh, well, this makes sense. And I, I will say that the bracketed games actually felt like my, my casual games, because they advertised, oh, yeah, casuals or competitive people, this, this tournament's made for them all. Well, that's because they were kind of shuffling out the people in the first four rounds, and then your bracketed games were like tournament number two for you to play against people of your own skill level or kind of slower. Not, I want to say slower playing ones, but people who are more there to just kind of have fun. They want to win, but they, they weren't as competitive about it. Right. I, I imagine that 3-1 bracket <laughs> was still probably pretty tight, though. <laughs> oh, I, 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 yeah. I imagine everyone in 4-0, 3-1 were, were definitely playing playing for marbles. Um, while 2-2 yeah. two and two is probably... You probably had a mixed bag in the 2-2 two and two bracket. 1-3 uh, and 0-4 and oh and were probably like, yeah, we're just here for some games. Let's have some fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that's... Uh, it, it always kinds of shakes... It, it kind of shakes out that way in most tournaments. But, like... Apart from, like, Renegade's the only other event and, like, our first year of doing Midwest Conquest is really the only time that, like, I've had an event with that used, like, pods. And I think, you know, one of the things that was always frustrating for pods was because it was, like, that hard cutout of, like, it your record didn't necessarily matter. It mattered what points you had. And so... Like, you'd have those people who, like, well, here's one person who's, like, like three... Like, you've got all these people who are 3-0 and going into, like, this, the pods the second day. And then you'll have, like, this ninth person who is 3-0 and but didn't quite earn enough points in the game. And so they end up in, uh, in the second pod. And that leads to some weird feel-bads because, like, they can never do... They'll never be able to climb better than that in the rankings. Right. And, and so, yeah, I, having, I, having everybody with the same record in the same pod, I think, helps that yes, somewhat. Exactly. And I think, yeah, the way to get out, like, would be have all the same records in the same pod and also make sure that at least your top pod is only undefeated. <laughs> so you have enough people or slash games to get to where you want for that top pod. Right. And I think that's the, the problem we have with most tournaments is most tournaments are five or six games. And that's not enough to seed people into i guess pods even like this i think you need you need those eight games to get to there or maybe six if you had like only like 50 or 60 people right um whatever the math is for for three which i guess would be a, uh it could be a hundred i don't know no you still have a lot which, more even on a hundred which raises interesting questions of how best like so for when you got into your bracket did uh like for best coast pairings did you effectively end up in a second event that was just yes. your bracket? Okay. Yes. Uh you could still see all the others but it was bracketed so to speak where all your standings were based on your bracket. You could still see overall tournament standings cuz those were still based on points. Um 
but you would see your bracket standings, which was kind of how you were placed in your bracket itself. Okay. Well, I know they they'd added some bracketing support to that. So so this was that in pro, in uh, practice. So that's cool. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Which I'll, I'll say I I the system was fine. I I don't have any complaints. The only thing I I kind of I guess mentioned to you guys is it might have been nice to have a um, two tournaments there, one championship tournament and one casual tournament. Um, I think they got the same effect doing it this way. But thus, yeah, the casual games being at the end, I guess you're already worn out and you're ready for casual games by then, so I can see their their logic and their system. But it, it part of me wishes they had a casual bracket for those who just want to play games and get in like five or six competitive but casual games. Casually competitive or competitive? Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know the phrase. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm looking at some photos of like the terrain and such because... Uh, uh, one of the guys from Goonhammer was playing, and he took photos of like all the the boards he played on while he was there. One other thing about that that clear those clear terrain bases is they interact nicely with those the neoprene um, objective markers that everyone's really enjoying right now. Because, oh yeah, because you can because normally you have put to like them on or you slide it under right. Like yeah, you lift it up, put the objective under it, and then set it down, and you can still see it. Whereas if you have like MDF bases, you have to like, well, I can if I cover it, I can't really see where the objective is, and if I can't drape it over the building, yeah, no, the the I, I have lots of good stuff to say about the terrain. It sounds like Goonhammer did too. Yeah. All right, so we've oh. talked about the 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 time and the judging and the the bracketing, so um and the terrain, <laughs> game length. Uh, so I guess get. I guess you want to talk individual games? Yeah, well, I won't get into full details, but I mean, this was also my second major tournament playing Sisters. Um, I revised my list after Iron Halo because I pretty much wanted to put more Penton engines on the board because they're cool. Um, I changed my um, faction, I guess, I want to say chapter tactics, but that's not what, what it is, but my order tactics. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly because they did have the rule saying that if you were um, not of the paint scheme of an army, you could not use their tactics. I mean, you still can by saying you're a successor of or similar to that because you can do that for that. But I'm like, I want to try something totally new, and so I like picked uh, the chapter or the order of order of the resplendent lily and went with the ones that gave me um, wound rolls of one and two fail when they attack my army. And that I could discard a miracle die to make my next miracle die a six. And went with those. And I think they both played out well. Penitent Engines did not get any use out of that first one at all. Because, well, five toughness is hard to um, need twos to wound anyway. But it did help with all the strength six weapons around. It did help my rank and file troops and seraphim. So that I still think was a good choice. Um, so yeah, first round was against gray knights and yeah, this definitely felt like a standard first round competitive game where I did finally get tabled, but it wasn't until like, I think late four, early five. Um, but the biggest thing that was is I denied so many psychic powers. The gray knights player was surprised. They were not ready for that much psychic denial. Because every unit of Grey Knights can cast. 
every unit of sisters can deny. And so it became a game within a game of how many units do you have in this area that can cast or deny? And although I will say at one time we did lose track of who had cast and denied because <laughs> so many. there were just, yes, yes, it was, it was a mess, but it was fun anyway. Um, so took the loss there, but I was p- pleased because in Iron Halo, I was given about 40 ish points and with the revisions to my list and strategies, I was getting, I got 64 points my first round. Um, round two was against Space Wolves. Um, again, my list was outmatched. And the, unlike round one, I could pick a poor the Witch, and I gained a lot of points with that. Round two, I just, the, there were no good secondaries for me to pick against the Space Wolves. They didn't have enough characters. They had really no monster. It was it was just like, oh, here's a list. So I picked non, not as effective secondaries, and I could tell by picking those I was going to be at a disadvantage, and I was. Those secondaries I didn't think I would get, I did not get, and thus that led to another loss. But I was still in the 60s. Had I had a secondary I could have creeped up on, I, I probably could have gotten to the 70s, but... You yeah, almost made my, the 70s, eh? Yeah, my problem there was just all of the storm shields. Because, I mean, I know, Richard, we've seen this with custodes or with the Grey Knights in the past, um, but two-up armor is, is pretty much means your opponent will only lose the game if they roll a bunch of ones, which I know you've done. I've done with custodes. This Space Wolf player was not rolling ones, so it... it <laughs> His wonderful um, storm shields were actually getting the job done of keeping a lot of his stuff safe. Then the third round, which is the last round of the day, I played against Thousand Suns. Once again, um, a poor, not a poor the witch, um, the extra psychic denial from Sisters. I didn't deny as good as I did in this Grey Knights game, but I was able to keep on denying him where he had his psychic stuff to hold points for his psychic things. And thus, I was able to kind of deny him some points. And he moved forward, like, I guess Thousand Suns have a deploy or something where they could move, like a scout move. And he put a whole squad of, like, uh, 20, maybe it was not 20, but a huge squad of Rubricant on, like, right next to an objective that then he went and hold. Right. Thankfully, that, I think, was a mistake because I was able to get rid of that. It took me two rounds, but I was able to get rid of that squad downside was that was the the highlight of the game because the rest was just back and forth with it felt a lot more even than it was i guess that one went 68 to 86 loss to me but i think that was more um thousand suns ended up with more staying power than the sisters did because once again once i lost my paragon war suits uh, the sisters were just not enough to scare anybody um right and And if i remember right uh, Rubric Marines pretty much ignore like AP one. Yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> so it was, it was like small arms fire was he needed to roll once again. <laughs> two up armor pretty much is what I had to deal with because even the Rubric Marines, um, yeah, the, since AP they treat AP minus one, they get like an armor back or something. So it's essentially ignoring it. So yeah, I I had a hard time killing them without my high AP stuff. Um, and then my last game of the tournament, I'm using the air quotes there because this is after this is I would get put into my bracket and I'm already at 0 and 3. So I'm like, okay, well, whatever happens, happens. I was expecting to go to 0 and 4 and be in the lower bracket because I just ran into so much armor that my army 
was not ready to t- take care of other than with my war suits. Um, and this was my different game. I played a Necron player who this was his first games at this tournament since like sixth edition. He said he might have played a little in eighth, but not really. So he was learning the game. He already, as soon as we got to the table, apologized saying, Hey, I'm still learning. I'm going to be playing really slow. Um, we'll probably have to get a judge over here a few times. And it, I mean, it's probably not funny, but it was funny that he knew the judges on a first name basis already because apparently this is what his first two games were like. And, or first three games. And he also let me know that, yeah, so far his experience had not been the greatest because his opponents were kind of gruff and they were like, you're taking too long. And they didn't, you know how when you, you kind of start speed playing and both people know what's on the board, you don't explain as much. You just say, this one's fighting this, I'm, this one's shooting, I'm rolling. And you don't right. get a detailed exp- explanation. That, I think, was his experience. And um, it wasn't a good one. And so I think we like to pride ourselves on being those that help others. And we want to, we want to see new players get into the game. Um, so I chose this game to play at his speed, talk with him, be social, because that's the type of game he was looking for. And... Um, then just kind of explain things. We even, we'd go to the rule book, look things up if he had a question. And he said he learned so much about just the game rules in general, just, just what we take for granted as basic stuff. Cause we've been playing a but bunch that it, it, I think that made his day. And I mean, one of the times when he called the judge over just to <laughs> ask a question, he was like, Oh yeah, I think, no, I think this time the judge came over and, and, and he, he pretty much told the judge he was thanking me for like being a good sport and playing the, like the game and helping him out. And I mean, that part felt good. The part that didn't feel good was going second and we only finished one and a half turns in our three hours. Oof. Ow. Um, yeah, so we did have to call the judge over to um, help finish out the game, and the judge did have a speed roll through like the third turn, or the at least the bottom of two to, to the third turn, and it was kind of funny. The judge always was trying to make sure I had my dice ready, and I'm like had to show him my hand. Yeah, I've got them ready. I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to go. I know how to speed play. <laughs> um, and so we we did make it through, and. Um, then after that, talk through the third turn, and that was my uh, my one win of the first four matches. And I hate saying it didn't feel like a good win because we didn't really play a full game. But I more chalked that game up to this was the learning game where we were teaching I'll call a new person the game because this is what he needed. And truthfully, Games Workshop did advertise. This tournament was for all skill levels. So I think yeah, this game kind of showed your, it. Yeah, looking at your, your write-up, you said that like his first couple of games, he got very much a why are you even here response from his opponents. And yeah. that's not cool, guys. That's um, Well, I don't know, you know if it was said, but I mean, you, you know how... Kind of that vibe. Like, yes, but I mean, we've and we've had this conversation. It's like it's one of the reasons why uh, at our last Midwest Conquest we split things into like a friendly and a competitive pool, and that was to give players who maybe didn't want to swim in the Shark Tank 
a chance to get some casual, friendly games in where, hey, if they are going a little slower, it's not that big a deal. And not all events are going to offer that, but if Games Workshop is offering this as an event for all players of all stripes, then, yeah, it it kind of... Uh, behooves them to to support that and i'm glad that the judge kind of followed through and was just like uh you know the judging was like yeah we'll help you talk through the game if if it if you guys are not handling it and and not coming down on either player for like slow playing or anything it right. sounds like it, it was just treated as like yeah he's he, this guy is does not play as often and so yeah kudos to the event staff for for yeah. having having people who are ready to handle that and and do it in a non-judgmental fashion Yes, I, I think that, and I, and a follow up on this, um, the guy continued on played. I think he played all eight games, and he said his his last games were a lot of fun. And I, I think when you're kind of alluding to getting to that, um, more people his speed. Mm-hmm. So I think, but yeah, the only being able to go through one and a half rounds in three hours, even for me, felt a little rough. Yeah, I and I and you you're totally it's you're you're not wrong for having the feeling of like man this doesn't it doesn't feel like I really got to play a game. But at the same time, maybe this round where you actually took the time to help him kind of get through and talk through these two rounds that he did get like two rounds he did get to play maybe helped him for those later games somewhat in a way that his his three previous opponents probably didn't give him. Yeah. No, so, I, I like to think that. So, yeah. So that put me one and three. So I got to be in the one and three bracket. Um, and this was when I started having to make a major decision coming up. Because I'm already getting tired after <laughs> after four games. Because even you, you heard me iron Halo where I was like, oh, my feet, oh, my back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was like, oh, man, am I going to survive all eight? And so I, I think it was around this time I started. And I said, well, I'll see how I feel after round six because i did right i remember you saying play seven yeah i remember you saying like i don't know if i'm gonna do day three of this yeah yeah i did i mean if i'd won all of my games on day two i would have probably felt obligated to do both games day three Mm because chance of winning pod type thing um but i got that knocked out of my sails really early after lunch on round five or round one of the one and three bracket, um, playing Adeptus Mechanicus. Um, this was a great game. I, I lost. I don't even remember what the score was. Um, I didn't write it down, but I lost. Uh, it, it was decisive, but the game was still a lot of fun. Um, I got to see units from the Mechanicus I'd never seen before, um, and like the the I guess they're called the Praetors. They're the guys with huge storm shield looking things that reflect damage on a six up. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Or melee damage, sorry, not all damage. Um, and there's also a unit he had that turned off rerolls. They had an aura of you don't get a reroll. Mm-hmm. And he said most of his opponents would ignore that unit and he just moved that unit over close to where rerolls were needed. He would not get them involved in melee or anything, he just hide them so the, the aura of no rerolls was there um it really didn't come into play in my game because he kind of put them off to a side and i had to go chase them down and i killed them quite handily but they're a neat unit i'd never seen before um but that game kind of went more of he had a, a 
tank and some big guns, and he couldn't get to me the way the train was, which, hence, you needed breachable. And that's where the Paragon Warsuits let me down, because they're vehicles, and they can't, they can't go through walls. The train. Yeah. Correct. And so I had to be going around. That just kind of left them out in the open to get shot. Um, I, I knew he warned me about this, like the um, Castellan robots they will reflect the damage back to you on a, a six if they save with it. And yeah, I, I killed one of my Paragon Warsuits that way. Oops. <laughs> and then, well, I knew it was a chance. I took the chance. Then later on, um, Celestine died that way too because she did her flamer just to try and protect like the point I was trying to get. I had people on there and Warsuits were on the way, so I sent Celestine up to try and like hurt them delay them maybe get in combat lock them up a little bit and yeah the flamer hit them and she took enough reflected wounds to kill herself and i rolled the one so she did kill herself Uh. (laughs) yeah twice this tournament she rolled a one and did not come back uh, you in the write up, you you blame the the preferred enemy's dice, and I can neither confirm or deny that those dice are cursed. Uh, I've had I, I've definitely had some experiences with those dice, which is why it's always good to make sure that both opponents are using the preferred enemy's dice. They they do feel cursed at times. I mean, I could not tell, and he even admitted I was rolling so many ones that game. It, he he felt bad for me. He's like, yeah. I, I know if your die if you made some saves, this game would be different. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it it would. Um, but no, it was a fun game, and he was a fun guy to play against. I also learned he's from Dallas, so I'm probably gonna try and hang out or get some games with him in the future. And he also let me know he's, I think, what president or head of the Titan Owners Club for the Dallas region or area. I'm not <laughs> probably going to take that step yet. So, but yeah, some apparently a lot of people will own Titans in this area, which having the signal I, close by probably doesn't help. Or, oh or no, does that help. does not help that addiction <laughs> at all. Um, I mean, I I could technically join one of those because I have my Townar, which I think qualifies. But uh, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's Titans. It's Titan sized. So right, it's it's the size of like a, a Warhound Titan. So, and if I ever did that, it would be an Eldar one because well, right. <laughs> Because of course it would be. <laughs> yes. So I'll say that was a fun game. And, and I was started my, my bracketed games off on a good foot because it was just fun. And also, I guess the funny thing was we both were complaining about our feet hurting, our back hurting. We were just like being old men. <laughs> yeah, it was like, you're old. <laughs> yeah, we both were. <laughs> but then the last game of the ga- day was against Tyranids. And oh my gosh, there were so many bugs on the table. Um, so many, so As it many, should be. and once, <laughs> yep, <laughs> and once again, kind of like I would do with opponents was tell them to pick assassination against me just in case they didn't notice I had eight characters. Um, he told me p- to pick the one where you get points for killing models, or like every ten wounds of da- or every ten wounds of damage you do to models that are dead, you get a point, which. Made sense because there were so many Tyranids. Um, so I took his advice and took that for the first time ever. And that pretty much was the deciding factor in the game. The game was very much back and forth. Um, 
I was now treating my small units of sisters as just objective holders, board denial people, because he had a lictor that could come in in the back, and I didn't want that. Finally, he, he did mention that you do know if you move those sisters up that you could probably kill off more of my bugs because I was kind of actually struggling in the first couple turns killing them. Um, just having ten extra five or ten extra shots from them could make a difference. Just wait a fire type thing. And the bugs have no saves, really. So um, I did do that. And then, he, as he said, his lictor was pretty much just there for the um, retrieve bacteria's data. So it was just going to pop in, get it on one side, zoom over to the other side, get it on the other side. And I was like, well, true. That's actually not going to do much other than... And I was trying to do the same thing on his by dropping Seraphim down. Um, although he did tie up my Seraphim that I dropped down there with... Um, oh, Richard, you might know. It's... Is it Venom Spore? I don't know. Uh, I'm going to venom- describe this poorly. Venom Throat? Might be. It was like sacks of things with wavy tentacles that um, and you're like that describes so much it, yeah <laughs> i would say that's like half the tyranid line right there um that wasn't the mycetic spores was it no it wasn't the ones that exploded because we we he locked my group in combat and we were very ineffectual at hurting each other for three turns <laughs> so that's what what happened to my my group after they did retrieve bacteria yeah the venom throbes basically yeah they're the ones that have like a whole bunch of tentacles up front and like spines yes. up the back yes and they're minus one to hit and shooting yep. an aura of that yeah yeah that's yeah dumb. yeah because he was he he made a big debate on do i move them because they're actually providing cover for the swarm lord but he's like i don't want you to get move these over to the other side to get retrieve bacteria's data so i'm gonna lock you in combat i'm like okay that that's fair and then the Swarm Lord got swarmed upon by um, Morvan Vall, Celestine, Ephemeral Stern, uh, and they pretty much slaughtered him. Because, I mean, it took them a couple. He, he did not kill, like, uh, I shouldn't say slaughtered, because he did get to swing back, but then the, by the next, they, he had nothing. Um, no, but it, it, that game was such back and forth and fun. Because, I mean, I had a lot of things die. He had, well, a ton of things die, but he expected it. Because he. I mean, the nice thing is he even brought movement trays. So, I mean, that's how much he expected to help speed up the game, which was great. And also the way the train was set up, how you could just move the buildings. You could easily move a building, set a movement tray in there, close the building back up. So, no, he he was a great guy to play against. He also said that his wife was getting into Sisters, and she hasn't played because they're, they're still like putting together and painting, so he was excited to see how a Sisters army played. And once again, my psychic denials were on point because I guess the... Is it Zoanthropes that you can have up to six? Yes. Yeah. And if you have six, they do stupid damage on Smite? Yeah. Yeah, I, I denied that twice because that was going to be stupid damage. <laughs> the one times the times I didn't deny it, it was still high damage, and he like smited off a war suit or two with that. But oh man, and I decided just not shoot at them because I had too many other bugs in the face. And but yeah, once the bugs were down, the swarm lord was down. He just pretty much had some warriors and his psychic stuff left at the end of the game. Well, and the lictor that was in my back line. And yeah, when we finally tallied that up, because we didn't even tally up how many points I got from the killing things until the end. And then that game ended at 69 to 66. So that was by far my closest game. And I'll say that was 
the most back and forth game and probably my most fun game I had at the tournament. So, and then I saw you highlighted his name, so I'll, I'll, we'll give a shout out to him. Um, his name's Cal Spriggs, and he's also an author for of sci-fi novels. So, if you want to check him out, I, I did look. I probably will go pick up his at least first book of his Valor's Child series and give it a read. Um, reviews I saw said it, it's someone who understands military and and that stuff and will cal is still in the military so it totally makes sense yeah this is this is his sci-fi relaxing fun away from the everyday grind of the 40k i don't say grind (laughs) but the 40k game (laughs) yeah no but but cal was really fun to play against and very i mean he he's appreciated my army as well because he's like yeah most other people that had shot him off the board within the first couple turns so it was nice to have a really engaging back and forth game so that was oh, that's fun. good that's that's all those are, those are some of the best games where it's it's oh, back yeah. and forth. yeah and then i slept on it and then i made the decision of just to do one game because i wanted to make this decision saturday night of how what i'd do one or two games as opposed to Sunday, because then Sunday I could let the outcome of my first game decide it. I didn't want that to be the case. I just wanted it decided. So I, I think I said, I'm going to do seven, and then I'll drop eight, because then I actually had the afternoon to sightsee Austin. I mean, yes, I live in Texas. I have some friends in Austin. I've been to Austin a couple of times, but that was mostly to see them. So this was the time to actually like see the city itself. So I got to like walk to the state capitol and take in some of the famous, well, maybe not famous, but neat restaurants they had. And so that was a nice, relaxing time. But jumping back, um, Sunday, game seven, went in and I get to play Custodes. And the funny thing about this game is the guy I played was a friend of the Thousand Sons player I played on Friday night. (laughs) <laughs> and and I actually chatted and hung out with them for, for like a while on Sunday night or not Sunday on Friday night after the game with a thousand suns player because it was a fun game. These guys were cool, socialized with them, um, and so then yeah, I, I got to play his friend. Um, and this game was pretty much over after round one, not because I was tabled or anything, but because I got vol or fall into combat with some jet bikes and um custode troops and um well now i told trajan valoris decides he wanted to heroically intervene and join in and i was able to wipe the jet bikes out and hurt the custodes but trajan valoris then took out vol in one round because my saves were horrible uh, and that's pretty much what decided the game not having vol on the board so yeah that just proved to me how much I know in the past we've said we don't really like to see auto takes and but I'd say right now Vol is an auto take for a sister's player. She, she is, is that good. That yeah. good. So but yeah, with her not on the board, he then just picked off the war suits and then he was like, Yeah, um custodes, our two up armor. We are very much not afraid of your little guns. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they are not, nor should they be. <laughs> And that is pretty much exactly how that game went. I mean, the only he said the only thing he was scared of was the multi-meltus. So once the Paragon War suits were gone, yeah. Had Vol survived and had I taken out Trajan, I would have had that side of the board. My war suits would not have been as dead because he would have had to spend more time on the war suits. I mean, I think he still probably would have won, but it would have been a lot closer 
it was still a fun game because the player I was playing was was fun to like socialize with. But we both knew as soon as Val died, it was pretty much over. <laughs> right, right. And that was the other game that didn't finish close to time. We finished with about a half hour before the the game clock was going to end. So two and a half hours for that game. But all in all, um, yeah, it was a fun time. We went to then. Like I said, I did the tour of Austin, which is a fun city. It was great being in downtown. Tra- traffic's horrible, so park your car and walk places. Um, so did that and then came back for the award ceremony, which was pretty neat. I did get to hear, apparently, the same person won all three U.S. Opens. Yes, Rich Richard Siegler got the hat trick of winning all three U.S. Opens. And I believe so that, with different armies too, because okay, because he won with Drukari here. He won correct. with Mechanicus in New Orleans. Siegel, okay, so he won with okay, he won with Admech the first two events, and then he won okay. with. Uh, so he probably toned back or changed his Admech due to the he, balancing rules. Yeah, he cha- well, he <laughs> yeah he changed so changed to Drukari went with so and apparently Drukari meta has now switched to uh, Homunculus Covens. Because they actually got cheaper in the balance slate. <laughs> so that book is just increasingly difficult to balance properly. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so, yeah. So then at the award ceremony, um, they did give the awards for one who won it all. And then they gave the painting awards, which they put high um, praise on both sigmar and 40k the painting jobs were done and they did say and i know we've noticed this in the past of sometimes it's hard to pick a best in art because it is so subjective yes and so he he, they did they did point that out and and said this was our subjective thing at this time uh, but everyone out there had phenomenal paint jobs, uh, and I, I took pictures of some of them, and they were there was a lot of really good paint jobs out there. I mean, I mean, it's to be expected, but uh, it was wow, so much good on both sides. I even looked at some of the Sigmar stuff and was thoroughly impressed. And like even on the 40k, there was a Necron that had used that mirror trick to make it look like they were coming out of a place with lots of infinity stuff going on and oh those are always so cool yeah so i mean i i was very pleased with with all that and then when they got on to the bracket awards um yeah i didn't know how they're gonna do this because well you could have multiple four no's in a bracket well and that was their solution is if you went four no in your bracket you won an award um and it wasn't just a little plaque or thing you also got to go back and get an out-of-print thing from um, their goodie bag, which was I looked like they said mostly both Black Library books. But they were all in boxes you didn't know you were getting until you actually pulled it out and opened it, which I right. thought that was a kind of a neat touch. And then they announced how they were going to be doing the finals, um, which sounded really casual to me. They were taking the top generals, the ones who like placed, well, technically in this case, second, because... Um, the grand grand winner couldn't play himself and was also going to be out of the country for the weekend in grapevine. Um, and they picked a wild card who like the highest placed person who wasn't going, which I thought that was a neat idea. And then those four people would play a two round tournament 
in Grapevine on that Saturday, December 4th, to see who the best person was of the U.S. Opens. Okay. So it was kind of like a single limb playoff. Well, I mean, you play two games, so you play your first round. If you win, you'll play in the championship. If you lose, you'll play third and fourth. So kind of rate those people one through four that way. And then they also had were doing it with the painting ones. So you had your top painter at each, or painter plus score, not paint overall, but your top best overall persons who was painting plus tournament results. And they took the top through that, and then the wild card who'd got the most from the others. And they're going to do the same thing. So you had your, your overall generals and then your best overalls. The best overalls would play amongst themselves for the who got the best overall for the U.S. Opens. So that's kind of neat. So they'll each only be playing two games on that Saturday. So because I asked about when are you going to start? When are you? They said, well, it's going to be very casual. We'll um, probably just start around 10 o'clock-ish or something and play one game, then have a break, then play the other game in the afternoon and call it, be done. And I was like, oh, okay. And that felt weird to me, who's so used to like hearing the word tournament and thinking it's competitive, and, and the GW reps there are like, yeah, we're just going to have it be a casual thing. This, we, we've already had the tournaments. This is just a bragging rights type thing, because I guess there is no real prize for it other than bragging rights. So Right. And then they said on Sunday, the 5th, they're going to go ahead and have those same four or eight, I guess, people play in two exhibition matches against each other where um, they will be using pre-constructed armies built by Games Workshop so that way they could see if it's the army or the general which is better because um, GW said they, they're going to have these armies balanced amongst themselves. So that'll be, that would be interesting. I, I'm thinking I might try and swing by to see that. Um, the other thing they said, which I probably couldn't speak about if I got any information, is... Um, they're going to be playing those games using the missions from 2022. Um, and we so should expect that early next year. I'm guessing after the LVO happens. Is my guess. Uh, yeah, LVO I can't imagine LVO would, would... Yeah, so with LVO <laughs> being the end of the ITC season, and that's like late January, I think. Yeah, LVO. so I expect this would be early, or probably sometime in February, maybe early March for the new rules. Uh, yeah, LVO is January 28th through 30th. I mean, they could easily re- release the, the packet, like, late, you know, late January and LVO just say, okay, well, we're, we won't be using it yet. Right. And it makes sense since LVO is the air quote end of the season. Yeah. But they hinted that the um, missions are going to be different and they're going to change the way you play the game. Uh, so no details. That's just what was hinted. Um, but we've known that for a fact from when we took, when we started the Midwest conquest and looking at renegade, how renegade changed their missions for what people had to do. And it totally changed the way people played. So yes, I, I am disappointed in a way, curious in a way, excited in a way. I'm disappointed because I don't feel like I've played the current year's missions enough due to pandemic and not getting out and playing. Um, I'm curious because what what will they do? How will they change it significantly? And three, um, I'm excited because, I mean, new things are exciting. (laughs) Well, and also, like, I'm wondering how, like, what, if any... Uh, preview of those the players are going to get or if they get to go in cold and try to kind of figure it out um the pl- what they said is they're going to contact the players ahead of time 
Um, and so the players will have their list and the rules and the missions ahead of time. They just have to sign NDAs. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. We know all about NDAs. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. So but, Okay, so this, it sounds like this was a really neat event, though. And I like... And it it sounds like the, the follow-up that will be not this weekend, but next weekend in Grapevine should be very interesting to see. And we'll find out what kind of coverage we get. I, I mean, I'm sure Games Workshop is going to discuss this on like their meta watch posts and such probably so. yeah and i mean the last thing man totally out of order that i forgot to talk about um mission packets instead of your standard paper mission packet they gave you um five by seven cards really and these are pretty much printouts from the book except they say instead of like mission something it says round five round six and so you have your deployments and all the mission rules on a 5x7 card that's easy to carry around. They have the same okay. cards for the table layouts that are in the packet. Now they're just printed out here as a card. They have one for the milestone times as a card. You can just have this propped up somewhere to look at. I thought that was really cool. I don't think any other um, tournament can do it because, um, well, probably, I don't know how expensive the, it would be printing yeah, all I was going to say, cards. the printing costs would get prohibitive, but... Uh, yes, and then the other one, which I hope they keep secondaries around for this, they gave you a pack of three by five cards, which are all your secondaries. And they have all of your secondary, like the secondaries in the book, including cards for faction secondaries, whether it's a battlefield supremacy secondary, a warpcraft secondary. Each of the different types for your faction is listed as this type faction secondary and one for mission secondary. Because their goal was, know how you're supposed to pick three and reveal at the same time to your opponent? This is yeah. how they got to do that, was you pick your three so cards. So basically you just pick the cards and then just, oh, that's, and then, that's so much easier. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, I mean, that that's another perk. And I, I, that's why I hope the secondaries stay the same, because these cards are awesome. I'm probably going to use them when I go to other places. Crossing my fingers. But I, I, have, a, I have a feeling secondaries will probably change as well, which means I'll I imagine have this deck for <laughs> a little bit of time. Well, fortunately, like you'll always be able to use those missions, just maybe not competitively. <laughs> well, okay, fair. <laughs> no, but as you said, all in all, this was a wonderful experience. Um, I, I will go again if there's one close by. I probably won't travel far for them because it's uh, hotel and everything else is expensive enough that putting even more travel on would be hard. But if there's one in the Midwest, I'm, I'm hoping Kansas City, Omaha, Wichita, St. Louis minneapolis any of those if casey gets one i'm going that's just well (laughs) it's in your backyard well it's in my it's in my backyard but even though i'm like not a big competitive player i would still go just to be part of it yeah and that's what i did here i mean (laughs) looking at my my record i went one and three and then one (laughs) and two (laughs) so i mean i'm not competitive but i went i had a blast and and I would say, yeah, if people are on the fence about going to one of these, which I don't think there are th- that many because they sold out, sold out um, yeah, try. And then, I mean, if if they get this much interest in it and they have waiting lists, maybe that will encourage them. Maybe have a 256 big tournament or maybe just 128 big tournament and then maybe a 128 casual tournament or friendly would be kind of mm-hmm. neat. But, no, I, I'm excited to see where this goes. I'm excited to see what cities they pick next year. And then I do have the hope that we'll have more than me going. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Hopefully, we hopefully uh, more than more than just you will get to go in future years because I definitely, I definitely want to check one of these out. So hopefully next year, fingers crossed, there'll be Crossing. locations that that are re- reasonably accessible to to more of us. Well, that is that is a that has been a, a cool coverage. Again, thank you for attending, Dennis, and, and for being able to bring us bring us this uh this feedback because it's like it's it, like going to events like this whether it's just been us going to like renegade open or iron halo or flying monkey or going to something like lvo or and this sounds like it was kind of maybe not quite on the scale of lvo but still of that i'd say almost that level of importance as far as you know it, it's good to have somebody on the ground and able to go so I, i'm i'm yes. very grateful that, that you were able to go and that you you gave us such a, a a good recap of the event. I, th- I I actually have a really good feel of of what it was like there. Cool. And then that will take us to hobby progress. Um. So hobby progress. Uh, I have actually finished building a bunch of stuff. I have like eight. I just finished like eighteen. Um. Of the plastic sisters repentia, so now I have I have two f- like full squads of those. Um, like I have, uh, I still have like another box of Zephyrim to put together. I have some retributors to put together, and then as far as like other projects, I finished building Bellicor, so I can start. That's for commission, so I can start uh, actually doing some priming this coming week and and start getting to work on him. I also, uh, at one of our local game store Black Friday sales, I picked up, because they are now back in stock, uh, two boxes of Celestian Sacrosancts, because that was like the one unit that I didn't have from the Sisters Codex that isn't like, well, I shouldn't say the one unit, because I don't have a Castigator tank either, but like the one infantry unit that I, I didn't have and that... And they are so good. They are good, and it's like the one thing I didn't have for like my melee focused sisters and i kind of i slept on that unit a bit when they first came out and then i think a lot of they were all gone (laughs) they were i think they were all gone because they're like at iron halo and even here i'd heard of people running like two or three squads of 10 each oof yeah i bought i bought two boxes so i'll have be able to field a squad of 10 or two squads of five and i that'll be enough that's where I'm at. I, I might want more if I go back to Sisters again because they are so good. And having a two up, four up just is pretty amazing. Yes, especially for Sisters. Having that extra resilience is, is super good. But uh, yeah, so I've got those. And then I got the last, the last three packs that they had, they will ever make uh, of secret weapon uh, 32 millimeter uh, sanctuary bases for my sisters so i ordered the last three they had in stock and they're not making anymore and then i also got an extra set of 50s which will probably be saved for a second set of paragon war suits whenever i get them either that or or a trio of mortifiers since i have a trio of uh, penitent engines but i've heard mortifiers are actually good too Mortifier, well, mortifiers were better than penitent engines for a, a while there, and then I think penitent engines have caught back up, but mortifiers are still supposed to be pretty good. The only downside I'm still is fond to of get the paragon. Yeah, paragons are cool, and then the downside on the mortifiers is you have they come in boxes of two, <laughs> so I'd have to buy two oh. boxes to have three, and then oh. I'd have one left over. 
Yeah. But if I buy a box of Paragons, it's one box makes three. So that correct. Financially, I think makes more sense. So because I and I've got like two swords and one mace, and so I would just make a box that was two mace and one sword to even it out in that way. I could kind of mix and match. Yeah. But yeah, so that's that's it. I have I have more sister stuff. I have a big demon to to paint, and uh, I think that'll easily cover me through the winter. Okay, let's see. For me, well, I went to the U.S. Open. Is that progress? Oh, <laughs> um, did you you were painting stuff like right up until the end? No, you? I got I got stuff painted like three or four days ahead of time. Okay, <laughs> still, no, I think counts, I actually got done I the weekend think. before. So yeah. Okay. No, but um, actually, after the U.S. Open, um, the Custodes have a codex coming up. Friendly local game store was having a sale on things, so I picked up two more squads of jet bikes pretty cheap. Or I shouldn't say pretty cheap, but at least a discount. Like they're going to be awesome and good or something? I mean... Well, I only ever bought one squad. so Okay, fair. Now I will get the the full nine as opposed to just having three. Especially if I wanted to make one a um, captain as opposed to a squad. Um, true, true. And then at the U.S. Open, I did pick up at least... Well, I picked up the event figures that I probably won't use, or but other than just to look at. But I did pick up a Sister of Silence, Janitha Kroll, the horse heresy character from that. I did pick her up and get her put together already. Um, unfortunately, Texas is now cold, so I, I can't prime her really till spring, but she looks frigging awesome. Do you have an airbrush? Then you can prime her. <laughs> I do have an airbrush. I haven't tried airbrush priming before. Uh, airbrush priming, like, use, um, use an actual, like, Vallejo makes one. Yeah, like, Vallejo makes airbrush primer, which is what I use pretty exclusively. I've also heard some very, very good things about, um... Uh, Badger, I believe, has a line called uh, Stylin' Res. Okay. While you look that up, I will also say I probably won't... Stylin' Res. There it goes. Stylin' Res. Okay. So Badger or Vejo. I probably won't paint her until after the book, Custode's book, comes out, because I don't know if I want to paint her her colors from the Horse Heresy, or if there is a, a named character or a character you can have in the Sisters' Army... Um, that I could use her as a representation for and then paint her mice color scheme. So I'll probably wait till the book comes out for, to make that decision. And then to you, Richard. Uh, I work still been busy for me, so I haven't really had much time to do any hobby stuff. Um, or got, I started putting together my second set of beast snagger boys. I've got like one and one of them put together, plus I started converting uh, bits that I have to make another knob so that the 20 that I have can be either one big unit of 20 or two small 10-man units. And then I bought some stuff. Uh, I ordered another 20 Beast snack boys and a... Oh, sweet another unit of the squig hog riders and the red gaba gabo <laughs> that sounds really cool and so i i haven't gotten those yet i i just ordered them a little a uh, couple days ago so and the red gabos like made to order so right it'll be a while before i get that 
but he'll be cool when he comes. Yep. And that's it for me. <laughs> uh, speaking of the Red Gobbo, anyone who bought the Bounce of the Squig limited edition Christmas plush, it has been recalled. Uh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> It's been recalled because the little Christmas pom-poms can apparently break off and choke children. So even when an orc makes something cute, it is deadly to everyone. (laughs) No, just children. (laughs) Just children. They even give proper instructions on how to destroy and dispose of Bounce of the Squig. It involves cutting his tail off. (laughs) So that's why we can't have anything nice. Oh, and the uh, the pre-orders for next week have been announced, and they are the aforementioned, but like army boxes that we mentioned, we discussed in uh, the news and new releases section. Uh, so those will all be out for, or they'll be up for order first weekend of December. So yeah, they'll be they'll be out on uh, on shelves or in hands uh, December eleventh, most likely. So um, let's see, and I suppose we should do a morale phase. I have nothing planned, and I have been busy. I haven't had anything. Well, then, really I, I can toss out my big crazy one. Which all right, you do. You, t- you yeah. toss one out. It's your turn. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, I also, besides this, have a hobby of um, video games, uh, and the the biggest series that I've been playing for over ten years now, sort of like this podcast, um, has been Final Fantasy fourteen. Um, their latest expansion is coming out on, well, early access on Friday called Endwalker and everyone is hype about it. You didn't hear that or cause I just was at a loss of words for a minute. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is pretty much a ending of a 10 year narrative that has been going on in this game and it's been a knock your socks off story that I will easily put at um, one of the top RPG stories I've ever played. And I don't know how it's going to end. (laughs) And that's what we'll find out after this Friday. And unfortunately, um, my next report on hobby progress will probably be nothing because I'm being playing this game. So (laughs) um, it is is a very good game though. I, I remember playing Final Fantasy XI with you back in the day when they oh. first did an MMO, and I was so not sold. And uh, I, I have played FF14. It's one of those games where I, I come and go from time to time. I I need to get back into it, especially now that I will be more than two exp- <laughs> Like This will make me, like I think, two and a half expansions behind. Well, but well, uh, two, two things I'll toss into that before I let you continue. As, sorry. Um, one... The director of the game has said it's fine to play other games. This this is a game that's supposed to be played, put down, played again when you feel like it. It's not a grind. I mean, it has grinds in it, but I mean, it's not supposed to be a grind or a job. It's it's something you play because you want to play, which is a refreshing take on games. Oh, I mean, absolutely. We, kinda, <laughs> we said that about 40K. Uh, just play what you want to play. Um, well, within the rules. Uh, <laughs> the other thing, though, is... Um, it does start out as a slog, especially if you know MMOs, because it, it really is an MMO for newbies at the very first levels, because it will be slow. It teaches you things. It's, it almost feels like if you're you're familiar with games, you're not out of the tutorial till you're level 60 and through the first base game and the first expansion. So I, I think you're past the tutorial, Rob. 
I, I am past the tutorial, although I'm not to level 60 yet, I don't think, so... Okay. But, no, the the story is a lot of fun, and and that's the main reason to play the game. Well, number one is the story. Two is, if you've got friends playing, you can play with them. But it, it is a compelling story. It has political aspects. It has war. It has adventure. It, it just... And it has a lot of characters that grow over time. Ones you might not like or know about early on, but then two expansions, or in this case four years later, they do stuff and they're brought back and just the way they keep characters alive is not the best word, um, incorporated throughout the narrative has has made it such a great story with great storytelling devices where you can look and pick up on clues and hints on things that come into play much later. So I, I, could, I could gush about it for a while, but... <laughs> oh, I, I, know, I know you could. I know you could. But, I, you know, I, I will throw my hat in the ring on, on giving this game praise, uh, probably for, for a few different reasons. So I don't know how many people listening know this. I know some of my, my, my I know my friends know this, but I have actually pretty bad social anxiety to the point where, like, I remember the first time somebody invited me out to play Warhammer 40k at a store, and it was somebody I'd only known online, and I went to the store, and I hemmed and hawed like half an hour in. And like half an hour outside, like I even went into the store briefly, saw all the people there, noped out and then sat in the parking lot for like another half hour. Like it was it was really hard for me. And Warhammer has been really good for that uh, because it gives me like I can go to a Warhammer event and know that I've got like basically this common interest act as an icebreaker but that same anxiety carries over into online play and so most games most games at all i will play solo as much as possible because playing with other human beings and i've had a few bad experiences um especially in like some of the old like warcraft three days um i had had some (laughs) games that were not not so good and so FF14, like, I wanted to play because a lot of my friends play, but it was like, this is an MMO, well, I, I'll i see how much I can solo, and the main storyline is pretty soloable for the most part, but there are these parts where you will have to do dungeons, and dungeons require four players. It, it's not like, like some games, like World of Warcraft, like, once you out-leveled a dungeon, you could go in and just, like, try to solo it. And I, I don't know if that's even an option in Final Fantasy XIV, but generally they want you to play through as a party of four, kind of old school Final Fantasy style. And I was playing as a, a paladin, which is a tank class, which if mean if ta- if tank fail, everyone die. So there was that pressure too, and I remember being scared to death of doing any sort of uh, of group activities. But fortunately, the game has made it very easy to find a group. You basically just say, hey, I'm playing this class and I want to do this dungeon. And it'll basically try to find players for you and, and find a spot for you to fill in. And so you'll end up grouped up with, uh, you know, they call it the duty finder. It's like a looking for group type thing like a, a lot of games have now. But I... The reason I want to bring this up is 
not only has the game been very easy for me to learn proper tanking, like the, like even with all, I'm, I'm sure it'll get more confusing as I get more and more buttons on my dashboard as I get higher up. But at least through all the stuff I've done so far, it's been easy to maintain. It's been easy to learn. And at the same time, the people I have been grouped with have all been very cool. Like I've, I'm sure there are people that have had bad experiences because everything comes with good and bad, but I have not had any of those. All of the groups I've been at, even the times when we've messed up once or twice, have been very cool, very chill. Just they want to get through it, but they're not jerks about it, and they want to help people learn it so they can do it better. And... It's been a good experience. It it really like it's at the point now where like I've done like I've done raid style content and just jumped like I'll do a little bit of research ahead of time so I kind of know what I'm getting into and then I'll jump into it and I can hold my own and everybody's cool and it's a good time and I the only reason I haven't played recently besides you know being busy with like moving and getting settled and everything has also been I'm at a point in one of the expansions where the story kind of slowed down a bit. And from what I gather, I'm just about at the point where it's going to pick back up, (laughs) which tends to happen with me. But yeah, it's, I have not been driven away by the game or the mechanics uh, or the community. It's been, it's what I've played has been very enjoyable. So if, if it's, if like an, it's an MMO where like, if you've been thinking about MMOs, but you don't necessarily want to uh, like you don't want something you're going to have to grind a whole lot during World of Warcraft and you don't want something that's tied to companies that have had uh, really bad track records as of late World of Warcraft um, then yeah if, if you if you like that kind of like fantasy MMO adventuring Final Fantasy 14 is a good one so I, I would definitely recommend it Two other things I would toss out about it. Music is amazing. I mean... Oh, the music is so good. Think think like movie score production quality music. Um, and it's not repeated. Like, you'll have boss fights, and each boss fight, like for the, the raid-style bosses, has different music. I mean, there might be a theme for one, like, tier of bosses, but as you go, the music is so many different types. It, it's just great. And the other thing is, this is a very dev staff that very much cares for its players and this game is like a passion project for them um remember our our old days talking about um, good guy versus bad guy gw yeah yeah th- this is like this game was made by good guy gw except this is now good guy square enix so it, it's that level of transparency and passion that that comes through and just like i think games workshop got better by opening up their avenues of communication and allowing player feedback to help determine things. Square Enix has done the same with this game, and I think it shows. Well, especially considering this game has had a bit of a a mixed history, considering that it was received so badly when it first launched. That's because it was bad. Yeah, it was not well done when they first launched it. And they basically had to, like, uh, didn't they let everybody basically play free for a long time until they were, like, for a couple years until they had the redone version ready? Yes. And then they blew up the world. (laughs) 
yeah, they blew up the world where they actually, and you cannot play those stories anymore. They actually are gone as the new version was released, and the new version is what we're on now, which is good. <laughs> well, and also the current director is basically the guy that saved the game, isn't it? Like Yoshi P. Correct. Is- yeah, Nokita Yoshida, or <laughs> I just butchered his name. I feel stupid now, but no, he's been he was the one that turned around the game, and he has pretty much said that this is his life project, and as long as people want him around, he will keep doing the game and. Know how, like, in businesses where they always say, what's your three-year plan? What's your five-year plan? And sometimes you have to think of something, and you're like, eh. He does have that far of a plan out for this game. And and that's, I think, what gives a lot of people hope, is the story's been this good. And if he has a plan for continuing it, and they can keep on putting up this type of quality, we're we're very, very excited to see where his direction takes us. Yeah, it sounds like it's it's a game managed by people who love it played by people who love it and that has been carefully taken care of and made made a success despite the odds that it faced going in and now i think it's i think it's actually outpaced world of warcraft as like the most successful mmo now like as far as um actively current players yeah currently not lifetime but a lifetime no but no it's it is a good game. If MMOs are a thing that you're at all interested, I I, de- I would definitely recommend checking it out. And yeah, as you said, Dennis, there is a brand new expansion. The But of course, you will want, for this expansion to make sense, you will need to play through the rest of the story. Yes, you must. And even the streamers that have been trying to go at fast pace, it takes them two to three months to get through all of the story, because there's a lot of story, but that's what the game about. Th- this game is all about the journey, not the destination. And also be warned that there will be times when the game will tell you, hey, this next cutscene is going to take like an hour. Are are you ready to go? Because you're going to be sitting there not playing for an hour while you watch this. So there are mini movies basically in this game. Get your popcorn. Get your popcorn. (laughs) Well, I think that wraps us up for episode 249. Hey, next episode's 250. Ooh, that's a milestone of sorts, I believe. And we should all be back together by then. Uh, But until then, from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm your host, Rob. Dennis. And Richard. Uh, Good night, good gaming, and GW, bring a U.S. Open to Kansas City, or at least somewhere in the Midwest, please. Okay, thanks. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.